this is a writing seminar in Durban. It would be nice if, if you guys would just tell me just really quickly, you know, five, ten seconds. What do you write? What do you write? Whatever they tell me to. Whatever they tell you to. Hare Krishna. <laughs> Can we get a little bit more specific than that? Oh, yeah. You write just articles for the magazine. Is there any other things that you write besides that? That's it. Mm-hmm. I wrote one article for the magazine, and I, uh, I was doing my PhD proposal, so university writing. Was okay, university. Writing. I don't like it at this point. I just you've got to be. You've got <laughs> to be really careful that your um, dissertation writing style doesn't contaminate your. <laughs> Seriously. Contaminate your your article writing style because university dissertation writing is abominable. <laughs> it is, and it is, and nobody wants to read it. It's awful. You have to write like that. But it's terrible. The researcher finds. Yes. Okay. okay. I also do some personal writing, and I'm focusing more on children's writing. Oh, okay. And I've already written a book for children, but I'm the publisher. Okay, okay. Have you seen our children's books? Um, there's only the Krishna series. That's you haven't seen the Dr. Best Learn to Read? Right, yes, I have. Yes, your Yes. The 42 color books and the yes. 41 black and yes. white books. Yes. So those are, um, those are done by a, a very specific system of grading children's books so that you, you have a standard for each book of what is the vocabulary, the sentence structure, number of sentences per story, the kind of vocabulary, the kind of themes. And you, I would suggest that you might want to study that because it really improves your writing for children if you follow those sort of I'm guidelines. I'm writing for young adults, youth and... More like 14, children, 14, 15? From 12. From 12, Poetry, okay, that's very good. One of the best things you can do to become a better prose writer is to write poetry. Yes? I don't write poetry, I just finished school, so basically I just wrote essays in school. Okay. She wants to study at Radish. You want to study at Radish? Oh, good. Very good. Whenever people ask me to do what, how to prepare for Radish, I said, learn how to write research papers. And then learn how to write some research papers and learn how to write some research papers. After you finish that, learn how to write some research papers. The biggest problem we have there is students who come not knowing how to write. They don't know how to organize a paper, they don't know how to do citations. It's the biggest struggle that we have. Yes? I also don't Food for life is devotional. <laughs> okay. Okay. You mean you don't write about like Krishna Leela? Okay. <laughs> but hopefully you write with devotion. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't do any writing for the temple or anything, but I'd like to start and. Okay. Okay. Yes, I have an interest in writing. Okay. Uh, I, I, I wrote a book for kids, um, for like learners, 
it's been published, and um, I want to know how to be able to use it in Krishna's service. And I also do personal writing letters to Krishna. Okay, so I would say the same thing that if you really want to. What age children were you writing for? Uh, for school children, I've actually got it here. It's uh, like for 12 to 16. Oh, also older kids. All my friends are writers. <laughs> 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 so, writers. They also wanted to come and get your association. <laughs> I'm so happy. I am so happy to see you. That's the main reason. Whatever excuse you want to have to <laughs> hang out, you know, it's fine with me. I just hope I don't bore you. Um, so, I, yeah, I write for Yishin News. I won't mention that I'm written an academic journal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's basically just for yeah, you definitely wouldn't want to use academic writing in Hare Krishna. <laughs> when I showed Jai Joy Tamaraj my chapter 5 in my dissertation, he said, what happened to your writing? <laughs> okay. All right, so the, I was asked to speak on this range of topics here. Just wanted to check that this is what everybody would like to know. How to handle and approach given topics, how to find an interesting angle, is it possible to stick to a word count and still share your message, guidelines for writing to multiple audiences, move away from the same old, same old, how much time should be spent on an article, can you wait until the night before deadline? Why or is editing important? No, come on. <laughs> throw anything out there right before the deadline. Guidelines to writers editing their own work. Is that of interest to all of you? Okay, since most of you are experienced writers, I'm going to kind of put this towards more experienced writers and those of you who don't have much experience. Sorry. Hopefully you'll, you'll get something from it, but I, I, I think the majority of people are already in the writing craft. So the, the main thing that I see that people mess up with in writing is that they're writing for themselves instead of for their audience. We have something called the curse of knowledge. The curse of knowledge means I know something, and so I forget that other people don't know it, and I even forget that I know it. I just assume that that's the way it is, and that's what everybody knows, and I don't even know that I'm assuming that it's like that. And I write as if everybody has the base of knowledge and the base of experience that I have. You particularly see this when a piece of writing starts out with the assumption that somebody wants to read it. <laughs> and by the way, this is a problem in lectures as much as writing. The people start out with a lecture or a piece of writing as if they assume that because they're interested in talking about it, everybody else should be interested in reading it or hearing it. And this is, I'd say, the number one, two, three, four, five problem that we have it back to Godhead with the articles that get submitted. It's like, why would I want to read this? What does this have to do with my life? What am I going to do with this? You know, I mean, we just got this article submitted, we're a second draft, of atonement for sins. I mean, do you wake up in the morning thinking, how am I going to atone for my sins? It, it, it's not something that people have on their mind, usually. I mean, unless you just robbed a bank or something like that. I mean, really, most people are not in that space. So the first thing you have to do is realize I'm writing for the readers. I'm not writing for myself, I mean, unless you're just writing your own journal. And this is not about just journal writing. If, if you're writing for an audience, you've got to think about the audience. That means you've got to know the audience. Frankly, oftentimes devotees do not write for any audience that they know. 
this is another huge problem we have at BTG, is people write what we call very internal articles. They'll write using ISKCON jargon, and they'll write assuming that everybody's read all of Fraubud's books, and if I just throw out a name, people know who that is. You know, if I just say, and then Duryodhana said, as if everybody know who Duryodhana is. Or they'll write about devotees in ISKCON, which is even worse. <laughs> you know, as if everybody who reads Back to Godhead knows who so-and-so Maharaj is, or even worse, who some local temple president is. People write an article as if it's a newsletter for their local temple when they're writing for an international audience. Because most people, frankly, they don't know and they don't care. You understand? I mean, people in the local community, they care. They care that Anurada broke her wrist. But, you know, <laughs> somebody in Brazil doesn't care. Who's Anurada? What do I care if she broke her wrist? And, and this is the... The problem where we think we think everybody's like me, everybody's interested in what I'm interested in, everybody's in my local community. So to write for the audience, that means to get to know your audience. And how do you get to know your audience? Well, you have to get out of your room. Now, many times writers, I mean, for myself, I'm, I don't know if it's obvious to other people or not, but I'm not a people-oriented person at all. I'm a very task-oriented person. I'm extremely happy to be in my room with my computer or long, long ago with my fountain pen. <laughs> long, long ago with my fountain pen. That's long gone. But it, I, you know, I was very happy to be like that and deal with people only briefly. But you can't really write for people if you're just in your room with your computer all the time. You have to get out and know people. You have to deal with people. You have to talk to people. You have to know what are their real concerns. What are their real concerns? Now, we're trying to preach to people that you should surrender to Krishna and you should chant Hare Krishna and you should fall in love with Krishna, whereas 99% of people really don't care about falling in love with Krishna. Frankly, even most of the full-on initiated devotees in the Hare Krishna movement, frankly, do not think for very many minutes of every day about how I'm going to fall in love with Krishna. That is just simply the truth. They just don't. They're thinking about, okay, how am I going to get my rounds on? I only have an hour. I'm going to do those meeting in half an hour. That, that's the unfortunate reality. You know, or how am I going to stop fighting with my wife? Or what am I going to do with this problem with my kid? Or what am I going to do with this disease? How am I going to get my pain down from a seven to a two? You know, that's... Yes, am I correct? This is the main thing. You know, I, I travel all over the world. People write and ask me for advice all the time. And there's only two people who regularly ask me how they can fall in love with Krishna more. That's it. Even when people ask me philosophical questions or Krishna conscious questions, it's usually they're trying to get knowledge more than they're trying to get bhakti. You know, I understand Prabhupada says this here and Prabhupada says this here and how can I put it together and what sense do I make out of this and what's the meaning of this. But the majority of questions that people come with are really mundane. Do, do people want? You know, they're, they're mundane. My wife and I are fighting all the time. You know, the big one is relationships. I'm fighting with my husband, fighting with my wife, fighting with my kids. I'm fighting with the temple president. I'm fighting with the other people in the Brahmachari ashram. You know, I'm... It's some sort of relationship problem. That's very high on the list. Um, another big problem people have is with sexuality and sex desire. That's another big thing 
that people come with. Uh, the other thing is just how can I get my sadhana done? <laughs> you know? How can I find the time to read Prabhupada's books? How can I find the time to chant 16 rounds? You know, how can how, how basically how can I follow the rules? You know, my wife won't cook for me. I I'm getting my PhD. I'm I'm working a job. How do I eat prasad? What do I do? These are the kinds of questions that you get most often. You know, then you will get some questions. How do I think of Krishna when I'm at work? How do I think of Krishna when I'm in, in school? But you, you, it's very, very, very unusual that people ask the kind of questions that most of our articles are presuming to answer. So if people aren't asking the questions, why will they want to read the answer? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. If I, don't, if I didn't wake up in the morning, say, now what process of atonement am I going to do? <laughs> what would be the appropriate process of atonement? If I'm not waking up ask, asking that question, I'm not going to be interested in reading an article that gives me that answer. It just won't interest me. And the writer assumes that I'm already interested because they're interested. And they, they, they hide from the reader the process by which they became interested and the reason by which they became interested and they hide from the reader anything that will interest the reader. So what you want to connect with, and the Bhagavatam is expert at this, the Bhagavatam is expert at saying, you know, if you read this story, you'll become wealthy. If you read this story, you'll have good children, yes? If you read this story, you'll conquer your enemies. That's another thing. You know, relationships kind of thing. I just had somebody message me that just before I came here. Armila, you've got to look at this thing on Facebook. Oh, what is it? Oh, look, these people are spreading lies about you. They're also spreading lies about this devotee. I'm sure the devotee was much more concerned that they were spreading lies about him than that they were spreading lies about me. <laughs> anyway, the devotees are spreading lies. You know, what should I do about it? I said, nothing. Just ignore it. But these are the, the things that we get caught up in. You know, somebody's spreading lies about me. Somebody's doing this with me. I have this friend's enemies kind of thing. So you've got to find out what is it that's on people's minds. What is it that's engaging people's consciousness? The Bhagavatam is saying, you read this story, you'll conquer your enemies. Why is it saying that? The Bhagavatam throws out all cheating religion. And friends and enemies is cheating religion. So why does the Bhagavatam have a story that says, if you read this story, you'll conquer your enemies? Why? Because people going to the Bhagavatam think that they have enemies. The vast majority of people picking up the Bhagavatam believe that they have enemies. So, of course, when they read the story, in the story, there's someone saying, you don't have any enemies. <laughs> but that's their motivation for reading it. And you think about the, the way philosophy is presented in the Bhagavad Gita and the Bhagavatam. It's all, pre- and Chaitanya Charitamrita, it's all pre- presented in the context of these incredibly engaging and interesting stories. Very honestly, very honestly, if the philosophy in Bhagavad Gita, Bhagavatam, Chaitanya Charitamrita was just philosophy, if it was not in the context of stories, how many of us would read it? I probably wouldn't. I mean, I've struggled with parts of the Bhagavatam that are just heavy philosophy. So, come on, give me a story. <laughs> I remember the first time that I read um, Second Canto, I was a fairly new devotee, been in the movement maybe two years, two and a half years. And when I got to Lord Varaha, I was like, yes, finally. <laughs> and, I was, and then I stayed up all night reading the story. 
So my point is that the Shastra is connecting to people's lives and people's interests and people's needs. And it's, it's putting the philosophy and the practice in the context of something that's going to interest someone. When I would get teenage students who came to me kind of burnt out and not interested in Krishna consciousness, I always would give them Ninth Canto, the story of Ila and Sujimna to read. And then immediately they were interested in the Bhagavatam. Do you know the story of Ila and Sujimna? Not good. So there was this king who had no children. And it was very that's very worrisome for kings because you have to have a successor as part of your job is to have a successor. And then whenever you're a leader, part of your job is to have a successor. So he had no son, and he asked this priest, and it was Vasista. Yeah, it was Vasista. Let's do a yagya to have a son. So while Vasista's doing the yagya, while he's in the middle of the yagya, the king's wife goes to Vasista and says, I actually want a daughter. <laughs> <laughs> So he gets kind of confused because he's right in the middle of the Jagya. And so he says a different mantra. And the queen gets pregnant when she has this baby. It's a girl. And at first the king's very happy because he has a child. But then he's like, well, I really wanted a successor to the throne. And then this isn't going to work. And you said you were going to give me a son. So the sister does some mantras and etc. and changes the girl to a boy. Not like modern surgery, where they just you know cut up your body and you know really change your gender, but they actually they actually could fully change the person's gender. So then this boy, he grew up and he's going with his soldiers on a I don't know exactly hunting trip or something. They had all these soldiers and all these horses and they're riding through the forest and accidentally they walk into Lord Shiva's forest. And one time previously in Lord Shiva's forest, Shiva and Parvati were naked and embracing, and some male sages came to visit Lord Shiva, and they came upon Uma naked, and she was so mortified. She said, from now on, anyone who comes into this forest will become female. So this poor guy gets changed, gets changed into a boy at, when he was an infant, and here he is with all his soldiers. And as soon as they entered the forest, not only did all the soldiers become women, but all the horses became mares. So all the horses became female also. So our, our poor prince, he wasn't terribly happy with this situation, and he kind of hang out, hung out in the forest, at which time uh, the son of the moon god became infatuated with her and married her, and they had three children. And that was the start of the moon. That was how the moon dynasty goes uh, to Krishna. That was the illegitimate son of the moon who married this, uh, who married this, this woman, and she had three children. And then eventually she goes back to the kingdom and she's not very happy with the whole situation. And Vasista says, well, nobody's very happy with the situation. And Vasista says, well, because it's Lord Shiva's curse, I can't just overturn it. But I'll tell you what, you can become a man one month and a woman the next month and your whole life. You can switch back and forth between being a man and a woman. <laughs> and as a man, he also married and had children. And ruled the kingdom. Interesting life. Wouldn't that be an interesting life? Yeah. <laughs> a little peculiar. <laughs> and, and what's really interesting also is that when he, she became old, um, he, she took Vanaprastha, went to the forest, and went back to Godhead after that extremely interesting life. So, of course, there's many morals of the story, the primary one being that we're not this body. And just as the story about the Moon Dynasty. So all I had to do was give a teenager that story, say, here, read the story. There's not a whole lot of purports in it. Also, it's just a storyline. And then after that, they're like, wow, this kind of stuff is in the Bhagavatam. <laughs> and then they would start reading the Bhagavatam, and they'd get interested in Krishna consciousness. My point is that your writing has to appeal to people's needs and interests. 
and has to appeal with, to what's really going on in their lives. And you've got to know what's going on in their lives. You've got to know what's going on in their lives. So how do you do that? You talk to people. You listen to people. You do a lot of listening to people. Pay attention to what people are talking about. Get on one of these social networking sites like Facebook and pay attention to what kind of things people are talking about. What, what's, interest, what's of interest to people? What are their concerns? What are their anxieties? Whenever I go to a temple, I always ask the leaders, what are the problems here? Now, what's ironic is that when I ask that question, nine times out of ten, the leader will tell me what he, or rarely she, wishes that the devotees would be doing. When I say, what are the devotees' problems here? What are their needs? What are their concerns? Nine times out of ten, I get an answer like, well, they should be doing more book distribution. Well, they should be coming to Mangalartik. Well, they should be giving more voluntary time to the temple. Well, they should be cooperating more. And I say, no, 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 that's not what I mean. I mean, when the devotees wake up in the morning, what did they worry about? And generally, the leader doesn't have a clue. Yes? What did Alvina say? That's more water. No, I'm not. Don't ask me these questions. I just finished reading an extraordinary book. I can't remember the name. Sorry, I can look it up when I go back to my room. About a, a company that was a janitorial company. In other words, they're... They had employees that went and cleaned homes and offices. They had a 400% turnover rate. 400% turnover rate. That means they were rehiring their st- every member in their staff four times a year. And it was costing them a tremendous amount of money. Plus, it was costing them customer loyalty. The customers didn't like it, that there was always a new cleaner, and they had to retrain them and so forth. It was a huge expense for them. So the vice president said to the president, Maybe we should find out why people are leaving. He said, oh, I know why they're leaving. We're just not paying them enough. He said, no, why don't we find out why they're leaving? So they did a survey, which took a long time to convince the president to do a survey. They found out that the biggest problem was not money. It was transportation. People couldn't afford a car. They're not paid very much. They often had to clean offices at night. The public transportation often wasn't running at night, and they were often working, you know, it was often unsafe to travel to where they were working. And as soon as the company provided vans, shuttle vans, their turnover rate was cut in half. Because they finally listened to what the people wanted. What was amazing about this book, the vice president finally had an inspiration. And he said, the business of every organization is to become its highest ideal form. And in order to do that, each member of the organization has to come to their highest ideal identity. He said, everyone has dreams. Why don't we find out what people's dreams are and and meet them? So they did a survey again, what are your dreams? And they found a lot of people had very simple dreams, like to buy a house or to go to France or something like that. And they ended up hiring a dream manager. They ended up hiring somebody that would meet with the employees and help them achieve their goals, help them manage their finances better or or whatever to achieve their goals. And once they did that, eventually they ended up with 11 dream managers in this company. Once they did that, not only did they cut their turnover rate down to zero, But people were lining up to get into this company. They were lining up to get into this company, and if they were offered more money in another company, they would turn it down. They would say, I'm not leaving the company. People started asking, can my children meet with the dream manager? Can my grandchildren meet with the dream manager? 
the, the people in the company started asking the employees if they could do more work for the same amount of pay. They'd say, you know, we can finish our job at, at 10 o'clock. Is there some other company we can clean later for the company? They, the, the people working for the company started becoming the sales reps informally and going to other companies and say, saying, hey, you should hire our cleaners for your company. And started bringing in business for the company. Why? Because the managers of the company were satisfying the needs of the employees. I you know, I have to go back and look it up. I didn't bring my Kindle with me. That's a short book. It took me like an hour and a half to read. Um, I'll look it up. But I was, you know, at first I was thinking I should give this to all the leaders in the movement, and I thought, oh, they'd say that's totally mundane. <laughs> but I thought, most likely the dreams the devotees have are not totally mundane. Probably if you surveyed the devotees and said, what are your dreams? You'd get things like, I'd like to start a restaurant. You know, I'd like to make a movie about Krishna. Some of them would say, I'd like to own a house in Vrindavan. Some of them would like to say, you know, I want to marry a beautiful young woman. You'd have that. But a lot of the... Uh, but a lot of the devotees' dreams would be devotional. And they want to know how that they can achieve their dreams. And I was just listening to uh, Prithu Maharaj, that he fulfilled all the desires of the citizens. And of course, Krishna fulfills everyone's desires. As writers, we want to show people how they can meet their dreams, how they can fulfill their desires, how they can satisfy their needs. Genuinely, through Krishna consciousness. That's our business as writers. How through, by becoming Krishna conscious, how through Krishna consciousness can you find everything that you want? Now, you may not find everything that you want in an external sense, in the detail. No. It's, we're not saying that through Krishna consciousness you're going to get that new red BMW. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that the the desires and the needs in you for which you want that BMW, you can get those desires and needs satisfied in Krishna consciousness. Prabhupada often says that the reason the devotees don't have material desires is they're already full. This idea that, that many of the devotees have is that being free from material desires means to become empty is a very Buddhist idea. Hmm? It's a very Buddhist idea that my material desires are the problem, so let me become empty. I don't think so. You know, our philosophy is that I'm supposed to become full. By connecting with Krishna, who's a complete whole, I become then complete, not on my own, but through that connection. I am then complete, and then all of my desires are full. Dhruva said, all my desires are now full. I don't want the kingdom anymore. He didn't say, I don't want the kingdom anymore because now I'm empty. He said, I don't want the kingdom anymore because now I'm fully satisfied. Now I don't need anything else. It's very much like you eat a big meal, and then if somebody comes and gives you a glove to me, you just, you're not interested. What to speak of if they give you old bread? You know, you're just, you're just not interested anymore. So people need to see how Krishna consciousness can meet all of their needs and fulfill all of their desires. Only then will people be able to start saying, I desire to love Krishna. When, when people are wrapped up with, you know, how do I get my husband to be nice to me? How do I get my kid to stop taking drugs? How do I make more money? How do I pay off my debt? How do I have time to chance 16 rounds? When, when they're caught up with that kind of thing, 
and you just present them with something that that's too high for them, they can't. They, they they're not interested. Not even interested. So you you have to see what are people's paradigms. What are people's paradigms? Always, always, always start out with people's real needs. Now, how do you do this? Well, again, first of all, you've got to know what people's what people call felt needs, because your real needs are for Krishna. You've got to find out what people's felt needs are. Please don't assume that either people don't have any or that you already know what they are. Find out what they are. Now, there are certain universal felt needs. So pretty much, pretty much everybody has some relationship problem with somebody. You can pretty much assume that any human being has a relationship problem with somebody in their life, that there's someone in their life that they, that they really have a, a, a challenge in their relationship. You can assume that everybody has some health problems sometimes. You can assume that most people have some money problems or money worries sometimes. There are some people that don't, but most people do. You can assume that most people that you're writing to have some difficulty with how to manage their ordinary life, their school, their work, their family, and their spiritual life. You can assume that quite a lot of, of people um, have some difficulty with finding a proper spouse. That's, that's a big problem today. You know, so a certain portion of your readers are going to have that problem. How do I find a proper spouse to marry? A certain portion of your readers are going to have this problem. How do I raise my children nicely? A certain portion of your readers are going to have a problem. How do I find a bona fide guru? Then you can also assume that everybody has problems dealing with the things that embarrass us, our lust, anger, envy, greed, and illusion. But if you start out just saying, this article is going to tell you how to deal with your envy, that's not going to go anywhere. Because very, 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 very few people, even most devotees, are not aware of their own envy. We say that. It's part of our culture in ISKCON to talk like that. But most of us don't believe it. Most of us really don't see and experience how envious we really are. We'll say, oh yeah, well, I'm so envious, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. And so if someone comes and says, I have a way you can get rid of envy, well, that's nice. We're not really terribly interested. Okay, we're interested in curing the problems that envy is causing. And it's our job as the writer, as the speaker, to bring people from, these are the problems that envy's causing that you're worried about. Guess where they're coming from? They're really coming from envy. Oh, and now here's how to cure it. Do you see the difference? All right, everybody, here we're going to have a cure for envy. Duh. <laughs> well, that person ought to, ought to read that article. You know, it doesn't, it's, it's not motivating me. Like the person who wrote, we should atone for our sins. Sins? I don't have any sins. What sins? Why should I atone for my sins? Are most of you worried about atoning for your sins? Do you worry about that? Probably not. Right? A little bit. Not much. Not much. I assume none of us in this lifetime at least have murdered or robbed a bank or something. You know, it's not something that's weighing on us. But if someone said, how would you like to get free from suffering? Oh, that I'm interested in. You, you do follow? Now, why am I suffering? I'm suffering because I'm sinful. Oh. Does this, you follow? You follow? 
if I, if I want to say to people, okay, this is the way that you can stop defending yourself. And if ever anybody blames you, you just take it and you don't say anything. Who wants to learn how to do that? Everybody wants to defend themselves. But if you say, okay, here's, here's what you can do with your relationship problems. I just had someone come to me with this big relationship problem. You know, she wrote some letter to somebody, you know, you're really harsh and cold and mean, and the other person wrote back, and well, you're harsher and colder and meaner. And it was a whole big explosion. And then I can start out, well, would you like to solve your relationship problems? Well, yeah, well, you know, it would really help if you stopped blaming people. <laughs> and stop defending yourself. But if I start off saying that person is interested, First of all, they're not aware that they're defending themselves and that they're blaming people. They think they're just acting normally. They're just, they don't, they don't really think about what they're doing. And even if they thought about what they're doing, they think, well, I have to do that. I have to defend myself and I have to blame other people. Otherwise, how am I going to get what I need and how am I going to tell people what's bothering me? Is this kind of clear to everybody? Yeah. You know, you, you start off with where they are. You have to start off with where people are. What's important to them? The questions that your readers should be asking is, oh, what's that? Ooh. In the first two, three sentences, folks, the first two, three sentences, your readers have to be asking, what's that? Want, and then the next question they should be asking by the fourth to sixth sentence is, I want to know more about this. In the very beginning, it should just be, oh, what's that? Then I want to know more about this. Then, oh, I, I want this. And then, oh my God, I need this. And then I got what I needed. Does not work. Okay, you guys are going to have to have some. Push pins, scissors, cups, cartels. Okay, just guys, that's all right. Just, just have good visual imaginations. All right, you got ready for good visual imaginations? <laughs> yes, that's right. Just, I'll have a break pretty soon. Okay. What? <laughs> is this what is this tell me more I want this I need this I got what I needed. And please do not surface people's felt needs without giving them then their real needs and then you've got to give them what they needed. Don't just say, if you're Krishna conscious, that will solve all your problems. <laughs> we were asking these devotees yesterday. They, they said to me, please give me your blessings. I said, what do you want? Blessings for what? 
I don't know. I said, what do you want? <laughs> I don't know. I said, well, you know, I said, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. <laughs> and, then, and then finally one of them says, I want Krishna consciousness. I said, that's much too big. So we also have problems with writers who just say, you're suffering in the world. This is terrible. Maya is awful. Which also doesn't really impress anybody. And then just chant Hare Krishna, be Krishna conscious, and all your problems will go away. That's not what people need. It's not what people need. It's not what people need. So it's more like, you know, you start off, so-and-so gets up in the morning, and again, they're getting into a fight with their son. It seems like at least three times a week, they're fighting with their son. What are they going to do? Then you lead in from that, that what they're doing is they're seeing friends and enemies. They're seeing friends and they're seeing my son is my enemy, my mother is my enemy. Why? Because they're not fulfilling my desires. You lead into from that into how our relationships in this world are generally how can people meet my desires? How can people meet me, my needs? How can people satisfy me? And often under the guise of love, we're really trying to use other people to meet our own desires. You segue from that to that is because we are feeling incomplete. And we feel that I need someone else to complete me. You segue to that, that this is because we're separated from Krishna. We imagine we're separated from Krishna. We segue from that to Krishna is the complete whole. If I'm connected with him, I feel complete. If I feel complete, I no longer need to try to look for someone else to complete me, and therefore I am no longer disturbed if they don't complete me because I'm already being completed with Krishna. Then how do I feel connected with Krishna? What do I do? So now you've got the person going, oh, I need this. You, you want to have your reader going, yes, yes, tell me how to do it. And you want to go on a little bit past that. Not too much past it, or they'll give up and close it. But you want to go, you want to get to the point of almost feverish. They're like, tell me how to do it. And then you've got to be specific. I'm going to connect. How do I connect with Krishna? By offering my work to Krishna. How do I do that? How do I connect with Krishna in my chanting? Don't just say chant Hare Krishna. How do I connect with Krishna in my chanting? Don't just say offer your work to Krishna. How do I offer my work to Krishna? And solve their problem. Another way to think of it is an unfolding mystery. All of us love mysteries, including Krishna. Krishna Prabhupada says he expands, and then he expands his knowledge of himself. So Krishna is always learning more about himself. Krishna is always a mystery to himself. Isn't that cool? Krishna is always expanding, and then his knowledge of himself expands, and he expands some more. So Krishna is always a mystery to himself that is always unfolding to himself. Krishna is always fascinated by himself, and he's always fascinated by us also. We are all intrigued by mysteries. You can get people to read anything about anything if you put it as an unfolding mystery. People will read or listen to anything about anything, even something they have no interest in whatsoever if it's done as an unfolding mystery. We're very curious by nature. We have a desire for knowledge. 
You want to build up people's sense of curiosity and sense of mystery and sense of wonder and sense of asking questions. Don't just throw the answer at them in the first sentence. Then why should I read the piece? You want to answer it before, you know, they get frustrated and figure you're never going to answer it. And if it's a mystery about something that's real in their lives, then not only are they going to read your piece, but they're going to become dedicated to Krishna consciousness. Now, when you're writing for multiple audiences simultaneously, which we do in Back to Godhead all the time, I'd say it's, it's definitely one of our biggest challenges, that we're writing for people who've been devotees for 40 years, and we're writing for people who are just picking up the magazine for the first time and don't know who Duryodhana is. So definitely when you're writing for a wide range of audiences, you must not assume that everybody has a high level of knowledge of names and facts and jargon. You have to be able to present your point without using those allusions, not illusions, but allusions. You cannot be alluding to knowledge that the people don't have. This means you have to get beyond your own curse of knowledge. You know, the things that you just assume that everyone knows and you don't even know that you're assuming that everybody knows because it's so much a part of your life that it's gone out of your awareness that most of the people in the world haven't the foggiest notion of these things. So you have to become aware of, of your own paradigm. But you can make very deep and advanced philosophical and practical points without referring to a lot of specific names and jargons and stories. And you can make very deep and relevant philosophical and practical points that 40-year-old devotee, that 40-year devotees can use and that one-day devotees can use also. Because we're all basically struggling with the same things. And the beauty of the Shastra is that the Shastra can be read and appreciated by people at all levels. So, you know, a one-day person and a, and a 40-year practitioner can all get something out of the same Shastra. So an article about how to deal with envy or an article about how, be, how to become more attached to Krishna is going to be interesting to everybody. The main things that you want to avoid when you have a mixed audience is, is the illusions and the assumptions. You know, the assumptions that everybody cares about somebody who lives down the street from me or the assumptions that everybody knows so-and-so Maharaj in the movement or the assumption that everybody's read the Bhagavatam. I mean, most of you here have obviously never read the Ninth Canto. So, you, you know, to, to get rid of those sort of assumptions. And more and more, I'm having to get rid of those assumptions even when talking to a committed devotee audience. I find it quite interesting that even when I'm talking to committed... There's some places I know I go in the world where everybody reads Prabhupada's books and so forth, but that's becoming more and more rare, which is dangerous, but that's another topic. <laughs> uh, so you, you really have to make sure that you don't assume people know things that they don't know. First of all, you'll embarrass people. They'll, just, they'll be reading your article and just feel like, I guess this isn't for me. <laughs> you know? uh, you, you'll, you'll make people feel bad, and, and people don't learn very well when they feel bad. Also, they won't be able to understand what you're talking about. Just like Prahlad Maharaj. Well, who's Prahlad Maharaj? Yeah, if you just throw out something like that. So the, mix, the main thing with mixed audiences is you avoid that. The other thing that you avoid with mixed audiences, and this is also becoming 
a problem in our Krishna consciousness movement that while at the same time fewer and fewer people are reading less and less and less of the basic books, more and more and more people are talking about higher and higher esoteric topics. Which is a rather strange combination. It's kind of like more and more people are eating ice cream without eating their rotis. You know, so uh, you also, the other thing you have to do with the mixed audience is you have to avoid highly esoteric topics. So, it, you know, highly esoteric topics are for very small groups of people who are already at a very high level of practicing bhakti yoga. You can bring in high esoteric topics briefly and carefully, but to exclusively talk about high esoteric topics should not be done for a general audience. Does that make sense to everybody? That's they can be brought up. Robert said we're not boycotting the gopis. It's not that, I mean, our temple has Radha and Krishna on the altar, which is pretty far out if you think about it, because Radha is supposed to be married to somebody else. So it's, it's actually pretty amazing that Krishna is publicly, it's, it's a private thing, really, in Vrindavan, and he's being publicly worshipped all over the world <laughs> with somebody else's wife on the altar. You know? <laughs> So we're not boycotting the gopis. You know, we've got Radharani on our altar. We've got the, the Radharani's eight friends in, in Mayapur. It's not that we're boycotting the gopis. We're not boycotting Radharani. We're not denying that Krishna has billions of, of girlfriends and, and ten, you know, sixteen thousand hundred and eight wives. But but we still we still should be careful how these things are presented. Srila Prabhupada always presented very esoteric things in the context of philosophy. I, I almost will say never. I, I'm not sure if it's never. I'm pretty sure it's never, but I don't know if it's never, that Prabhupada told stories without philosophy. I don't know of any instance where Srila Prabhupada simply told stories without philosophy. Any. I mean, again, there could be one. I, I think I've listened to all the Prabhupada's recordings at least 20 times. I think so. I don't think I've missed a recording. And I've read all of Srila Prabhupada's books far more than once, some of them 20 times. I, I can't think of any instance where Prabhupada just tells stories without philosophy. Although, again, I'm not going to say never. But I was just listening to a talk Prabhupada gave on Gorpurnima, and he hardly talked about Lord Chaitanya at all. That was typical, by the way. It was very typical. Prabhupada will give a talk on Radhastami, he's talking about Varnashram. At the end of the talk, he says, So today is Radhastami. <laughs> Sometimes there's one talk on Govardhan Puja very early in the movement, 68 or something, where Prabhupada tells the story of Govardhan Puja. He hardly gets through it at all. By the end of the class, he's only with Krishna talking to Nandamaraj about Karma Mimamsa philosophy. He doesn't, doesn't go through the whole story in that class. So I'm not saying that we can't tell stories. I'm not saying that. I, mean, I give a class on Govardhan Puja where I go through the whole story, I don't just stop at the Karma Mimamsa. But we should be very careful that that higher topics are always interwoven with philosophy. Never, ever, 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 ever present Leela, any kind of Leela, separate from philosophy. We also have a problem with these kind of articles submitted to BTG. It's just stories. There's no philosophy. And frankly, to the general public, it sounds like a bunch of superstitious Hindu legends and myths when you do that. So... You can, if you have some really good friend and you're both in Raganuga Bhakti, you know, <laughs> fine. Sit down in your room, and I'm not joking. 
I'm, I'm being very serious. If, if, you, if you and your friends are at Raghunuga Bhakti and you've all realized you're cowherd boys and you can sit down in your room and you can just tell Leela without philosophy, and that's fine. But not for general audience. And not, and not, not, certainly not for a mixed audience. That always, always, always Leela should be mixed with philosophy and avoid things that are highly esoteric and where Krishna would be criticized. But you can always explain even basic, basic, basic philosophy in ways that are interesting to even senior devotees. There's always new angles. Sadhaputaprabhu was expert at this. Sadhaputaprabhu could explain unbelievably how you're not this body. He could take you're not this body and explain it in such a way that even if you've been chanting Hare Krishna for decades, you're like, wow. <laughs> so that, that's the sort of thing that you want to focus on. What new angle can I give this? How Can I give an analogy people haven't heard of? Can I give an application people haven't heard of? Can I give some depth of realization that people haven't heard of? I mean, if you're a brand new devotee and you're just a beginning writer, just repeating the same old, same old may be a good start. But that, that's not where you want to stay, and that's not the kind of published writing that we want to have. Now, what does it really mean, I'm not this body? What it, how, can I, how can I deal with that when I'm driving my car? How can I deal with that, you know, when I'm in pain, right? That's the hardest time, I, for, I think, I think. The hardest time that I'm not this body is when you've got a 9 out of 10 pain. Yes? That's, that's the hardest time. You tend to become absorbed in the pain. And you're like, I wish I could understand I'm not this body. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you do that? How does knowing I'm not this body help if you've got a 9 out of 10? How does knowing I'm not this body help when I get into a fight with my husband? How does knowing I'm not this body help when I'm at work? What do, how, what do I do with it? So it may not just be convincing people that they're not this body, but also how do I apply this knowledge? What do I do with this knowledge? And be meditating on different angles. So this is not only meditating on your audience and getting to know your audience, but having your antenna out in the world. There's a, a fable about this, this man walking down the street and he sees a whole bunch of, of targets on a wall and in each target there's an arrow right in the bullseye. He's like, wow, who is that archer? So he makes some inquiries. He finds this one young man. Are you the archer? He says, yeah. He says, how do you do that? He says, well, first I shoot the arrows and then I draw the targets around. <laughs> <laughs> what you want to do is you want to find where there's already arrows and then draw your targets around them. You want to look around in the world. When you're listening to people, so you're listening to people to find out their needs. You're also listening to people to get different angles on things. And, and I, I'm recording this, and I hope I'm not going to be um, thrown out of the Hare Krishna movement for this, but read widely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a time in the Hare Krishna movement where you couldn't say that on a recording, but do read widely. You know, read, 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 find out what's going on in the news. I mean, I have certain areas of interest. I'm particularly interested in education and leadership. That's the areas of my degree. And I'm, like I told you, I read that book about the company that has this dream manager. Why did I read that book? I'm always reading at least one book on leadership. It's my interest. 
You know, sometimes I read book on health and book on psychology. And I find all these arrows sticking all over the place that then I can relate to Krishna consciousness. It, it really helps for me. You know, I'm not doing it anymore, but when I was a Gurukul teacher and I was teaching pretty much, pretty much every subject from beginning to end, from age 5 to 18, almost every subject. I didn't teach chemistry. I didn't teach foreign language. That was about it. Didn't teach calculus, but everything else. So you start to relate Krishna consciousness to these different things, and you can start to bring in different examples and different analogies. So you're not just bringing in the same examples all the time and the same perspective all the time. Broaden your, your knowledge base and your experience base through your own life and also vicariously through the readings, through the writings of others and through your experience of others. I've also found, again, but anyway, I have. I found some really good inspiration in some Christian writers. And by the way, I wasn't raised Christian. I don't have any attachment to Christianity. I was raised Jewish. But I found some really, really good inspiration in some Christian writers, especially C.S. Lewis and St. Teresa of Avila. And just amazing, amazing things that really like opened windows in my, in my heart for me. And oh... Oh, yeah. Uh, what I, I found with C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis is really, really good at describing up to Nishta. He doesn't really understand past Nishta. I don't think he went past Nishta. But he, he really understands the psychology of a neophyte religious practitioner. And I'm going to dare to say that I think a lot of our acharyas really don't because a lot of them are Nichisiddhas. And I, I, they haven't experienced it. I'm sorry, but this is what I, I see. You know, a lot of our acharyas will just say things like, just chant Hare Krishna, and immediately you realize Krishna's like, uh, I don't. But I, I don't immediately realize Krishna. I don't chant Hare Krishna and immediately realize I'm not this body. That's not what's happening to me. That's not my experience. And for a long time I thought, why, why do they keep saying this? I thought, because that's obviously their experience. They chant Hare Krishna and they realize Krishna. And so I found sometimes going to people who, who are ordinary, like me, that it gave me some, okay, this is a step-by-step -step on the beginning process. Is that heretical? Are you sorry you asked me to give this? <laughs> in, in my defense, I know that, like, um, one of my favorite books, Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I know Jai Dorja Swami Ravindas Rupu told me it's also one of their favorite books, so. <laughs> hopefully that hopefully that absolves me. But but you have to also thoroughly read Shiva Prabhupada's books, please. If you haven't read the ninth canto, why don't you do that first? I suggest you put that first on your list. So that's another thing is to really thoroughly read Prabhupada's books over and 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 listen to Prabhupada's lectures over and over and over and over and over. And you will find depth there. You will keep discovering things there that you didn't discover before. You'll hear things that you didn't hear before. You'll listen to a lecture that you've heard 20 times, 25 times, and you'll hear something in it you didn't hear before. Then you bring that to your writing. You bring that depth to your writing. So even though you're talking about essentially the same things, God is a person, and we're not this body, that you'll, you'll keep coming up with different angles, and because there are, there's unlimited angles. 
But Bhagavatam also talks about the 11 gurus. You know, you can learn from the dog, and you can learn from the birds, and you can learn from the clouds. And you can, you can basically learn from everybody and gain something that you can bring to your writing to give a fresh angle to the same topics. Okay, we're going to go over a few more things, and we're going to take a little break. Um, there was the question is, how can you really develop something to a particular word count? That's just practice, 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 practice. When you write to a particular word count over and over again, you get a sense or a feel of how long it is, and therefore you get a sense or a feel about when you're going to come to these different stages. You know, how long do I spend on the what is this? How long do I spend on the, spend on the tell me more? How long do I spend on the I want this? How long do I spend on the I need this? How long do I spend on the I got what I needed? You, you get a sense of that. And of course, you can't really make it into a set formula. You can't say, well, there's X number of words for this and X number of words for that. Uh, for sure, don't do what a lot of people do, where you get people at a feverish pitch that they want something and then you don't give them what they need. <laughs> or you just say, just be Krishna conscious. In, in our Back to Godhead editors, we call this Pop Goes the Gita. <laughs> Here's the problem, 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 the problem. Be Krishna conscious. End of story. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so you, you want to give people enough time to really get into the solution. Oh, I know what I... Something that I... How do, how do you... What's the technique for surfacing people's felt needs. I was starting to talk about this before, and then I think when I didn't have the pen, I got distracted. So the way that you surface people's felt needs is with a story, an interesting fact, or a question. A story, interesting fact, or a question. A true story is best. It doesn't have to be a true story. There's lots of fables and metaphors and stuff in the Shastra. There's nothing wrong with using. There's nothing wrong with using fiction that teaches truth. A lot of nonfiction teaches lies. Okay? If I'm going to give you the biography of Elizabeth Taylor, it's full of illusion. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or, I don't know, any of the big movie stars, rock stars, or whatever. What's um, Britney Spears. I don't know very many of them, I'm sorry. I don't read that widely. <laughs> You know, if you, if you take one of these people like Britney Spears and you were to tell her life story, her life story is not full of truth. Her life story is full of lies. It's not that those things didn't happen, but it's all lies. It's all illusion. It has no meaning. It's not that fiction is Maya and nonfiction is Krishna. That is not the case. The Shastra is full of fiction. Paranjana story is fiction. The story that Irani Kashipu tells of the of the birds and the hunter, that's fiction. Bhakti Sanatya Saraswati tells a lot of fictional analogies. There's that whole little book of stories that Bhakti Sanatya tells. They're all fables. A fable is fiction. They're fables. Yes? I just want to say that I don't think uh, a lot of people are aware of that. Well, now you are. <laughs> so Bhakti Sanatya Saraswati has, has told many stories, and you can get this little book of Bhakti Sanatya stories. They're all fiction. They're like Aesop's fables. So they teach truths. They teach truths, but they're in the form of a metaphor. So this this whole sections. I have the book. 
Okay, and there's whole sections of Bhagavatam. The Forest of Material Enjoyment, which is the story told by um, Judd Bharatamaraj Rahugana. That is a fictional metaphor that's teaching truth. So you can have, whatever, your, whatever stories you have have to teach truth. If they're true stories that teach truth, great. But they don't have to be. And uh, uh, Narada Muni tells fictional metaphors also to the, to, um, the sons of Daksha. So there's this many, Narada Muni is really into telling fictional metaphors. It's one of his main teaching techniques. So telling fictional metaphors can sometimes be more powerful, by the way, than telling nonfiction stories. And there's a whole reason for that, which we don't have time to get into. But basically, you bypass people's false ego, and it's just a nice little story, and they'll be open to it. So anyway, the way you surface people's felt needs is with a story. That story has to be teaching truth. Whether the story itself is true or not is irrelevant. Of course, if it's not true, you have to make sure people know it's not true. Don't, don't fool your readers. Or an interesting fact or a question that they're not going to know the answer to. Now, the other way you surface people's felt needs is to keep in mind that most people are motivated either by positive things or by negative things primarily. So some of us, the way we motivate ourselves is we criticize ourselves for what we've done wrong. And some of us motivate ourselves by praising ourselves for what we've done right. Some of us motivate ourselves by thinking about the wonderful things we want to achieve, and some of us motivate ourselves by thinking about all the horrible things we've done that we don't want to do again. Now, we all do a little bit of both, but each of us tends to have our preference. So in personality studies, that's called toward or away from. Each of us is more a toward person or an away from person. And by the way, this is not good or bad. It's not like it's good to be a toward person, it's bad to be an away from person. We just are what we are. If you're a totally towards person or a totally away from person, that's very bad. Totally towards person, totally positive thinking persons do things like bungee jumping off cliffs and take drugs because they never see the negative side to anything. So you don't want to be completely just motivated by the positive. And people who are totally motivated by the negative never get out of bed. So, you know, you, you don't, and you hardly ever find people who are all the way at the ends of the spectrum. But when you're trying to surface people's felt needs, and again, at the end, when you're giving them what they need, what you want to give people is some sort of a picture, some sort of a feeling. And Shastra does this by doing both towards and away from. Krishna is saying how wonderful the spiritual world is, and he's saying how terrible the material world is. Chapter 8, he's doing both in the same chapter. How wonderful the spiritual world is, how bad the material world is, and in the same chapter, he's doing both. Bhagavad Gita does not just say how wonderful Krishna is, and Bhagavad Gita does not just say how terrible Maya is. It says both. Bhagavatam also, it tells you about Krishna and his Leela, and it also tells you the forest of material enjoyment. It also tells you about the hellish planets. It's got both. So suppose that you've, you've thought about your topic. This is a topic that, that people really need to hear, and you've connected it to what real need do people have, what is the felt need in their life that's going on. So the thing that people really need to do is they really need to connect with Krishna. And the need I'm going to connect this to is uh, people's need to get money. Okay? That's what I'm going to connect it to. And I'm going to assume that most of my readers have some anxiety about money. Not all. I'm not going to get everybody like that. But most people have some anxiety about money. Or some anxiety about maintenance. You know, even people living in an ashram maintained by the temple, they worry, is the temple going to maintain me if I get to be 90 years old and I get sick? They think about this, yes? Unless they're very Krishna conscious. 
people are going to be worried about this. What's going to happen? You know, suppose I become poor and nobody loves me anymore. So that's what you surface. You surface at the beginning this fear, this need, this anxiety. You can do it through a story. You can do it through a story of the man in Vrindavan who's on the Parakram path and lives there with absolutely nothing except blankets that get donated to him. And how people bring him food. And, you know, we may think that when we, if we become a devotee of Krishna, we have to live like that. Or we may think that Krishna will force us to live like that because Krishna takes away everything from those he loves. So we're, we're afraid, you know, if I become Krishna conscious, does that mean I have to give up my car? Does that mean I have to give up my job? And if I don't do it, does that mean that I'm attached? And if I'm attached, will Krishna be angry at me? And he'll take it all away. So I better not really surrender to Krishna because if I really surrender to Krishna, he might take it away. <laughs> that's that's, the, that's the, the felt need. That's people's felt need. So we may think that, you know, well, okay, I'll sort of surrender to Krishna, but I'll keep my attachment because that way I'll make sure I'll have enough money. And, and Krishna will know I'm not really that sincere, so he won't take everything away. And then I can, <laughs> then I can kind of have a job on the side. And <laughs> so why are you laughing? Because it's real, yes? Yes. yes. Is this real? Yes. Okay, you got to be real, folks. you got to be real. So this is how you surface it. Now I'm going to be really cruel and not answer it for you, which I told you not to do in your writing. But I'm trying to give you an example of how to surface people's felt needs. You want to surface it with positive or negative or both. So both would be, you know, but it is possible to live as a devotee and not worry about material needs. And you can quote this saying in Prophet says, where Prophet says, you know, the devotee doesn't worry about his personal maintenance. He just worries about, he's just focusing on serving Krishna. And how nice that would be if I could go through life without having any anxiety. You know, just imagine if one if one could go through life with just thinking, I, all I have to do is serve Krishna. I don't need to worry about not my material needs. I don't need to worry about how I'm going to pay for my kids' education. I don't need to worry about who's going to take care of me when I'm old if I never marry and never have kids and just live in the ashram. If I could just have peace. Whew. Okay, that was positive and negative, wasn't it? Are you interested? Are all of you interested? Would you like to read my article? <laughs> do you understand? Now, I'm not going to tell you in the article how to make money. I'm not going to tell you how to get a, a savings account. I'm not going to tell you how to buy an insurance policy. Do you follow what I'm saying? That's not what I'm going to tell you. I'm, I'm going to tell you how to depend on Krishna, and I'm going to tell you how to have a mood of depending on Krishna. And then I'm going to give you really specific details. And then again, at the end, then we're going to build this positive-negative, but in a different way. So now that, now that, you know, you can see once you've done that, then you go through life with really just being able to meditate on Krishna in your service with full confidence. And with, with not just full confidence, but it's, it becomes out of your consciousness. It just becomes out of your consciousness. The worry is gone. It's simply gone. It's not there anymore. So you describe this, this picture of the positive and the negative. Whereas those who don't take this, and Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says those who, you know, follow my instructions, they gain everything, and those who don't, then they're befooled and befuddled and they're lost. Whereas those who don't do this, even if they're religious and pious people, they remain bound up with anxiety to the world. And although they're, you know, maybe have some religiousness, that the thoughts of Krishna are all put out by the thoughts of how am I going to take care of myself. So that's the negative. Are you you with me here? Okay. 
So that's how you surface the, the need, positive, negative pictures. Some pictures where you're going to hit people's feelings. You're basically taking things that are already in people's consciousness and already in people's minds, and you're bringing them to the surface and making them aware of them, going, oh, I do care about this. Now, what's really nice about Krishna consciousness is you can bring to people's awareness stuff that most of us are, are kind of embarrassed to admit that we're worried about. You know, the advertisers do this, and then they manipulate you. Oh, yes, you're worried about your security by this car. But what we can really and truly solve people's problems. All right, one of the things I was going to talk about now, I'm going to talk about after a break. 15 minutes? Is that cool? All right, everybody all right with that? Yes. Has this been helpful so far? Yes. Okay, so come, it's, I have my watch says 1120. And uh, come back at 11.35, so 15 minutes from now, is that right? If you have a pen, that would be nice. If, if it's too much trouble, that's fine, but if you have a pen, that would be nice. Okay, February 17, 2014, Writer's Workshop, Part 2. Um, I just, some books here. Did you find this one? I'm looking now, just connected. Okay, this book, The Writer's Art by Kilpatrick, read the first name. Um, James J. Kilpatrick. Yes, thank you, James. This is a, a classic in just general writing, uh, terms, structure. I would suggest you read it at least five times. I'm, I'm very serious. I'd suggest you read it until you can breathe it and it's part of you and you never need to read it again because it's just osmosis has pervaded you. Okay. It's just a general writing book. This is the one I was referring to about that company that they got the, the Dream Manager by Matthew Kelly. It's a, it's a very quick read. By the way, that, this book is also a very good example along with these two down here of writing techniques. So not only is the message of the Dream Giver by Matthew Kelly a very interesting message as far as how to, how to deal with people and how to be a leader, but he's done this, he's given his message almost entirely, 90% in the form of a narrative, in the form of a story. And it gives you some idea of how to communicate a powerful message in an unusual way. And these two books I put down here also for that purpose. The Dream Giver by Dr. Bruce Wilkinson. He's he's really he's he's a Christian writer. He's a both Christian writers, and he's teaching a very powerful message through fable. So first, Bruce Wilkinson and the Dream Giver gives you a fable, and then he gives you a analysis of his fable. And the Screw Tape Letters is also a very in, innovative writing technique by C.S. Lewis, who you've probably heard of with the Narnia stories. So Screw Tape Letters is a series of letters from a chief demon to a minor demon <laughs> and telling how to bewilder a human being and how to take a human being away from God. So everything's backwards. They refer to God as, you know, our enemy below, our enemy above, and the devil is, you know, our father below. And everything in there is backwards. So what's good is bad and what's bad is good. 
and it's uh, a, an incredible psychological study again of the of the neophyte devotee, and what is the the path the, the beginning path of bhakti. But his his writing technique is so clever, and it's very engaging. Um, some of these other ones here, these three here, they're. Uh, they're about they're they're geared more to the speaker rather than the writer, but the principles would apply. Chip and Dan Heath have two books, Made to Stick and Switch. Uh, Made to Stick is a is a really good book that gives you step by step guidance for how to give a speech or how to write an essay, so people will remember what you taught them. And Switch is how to get people to change their attitudes and or behavior. And again, it gives you formulas and, and guidelines. If you follow these, you'll, really, you'll, you'll be very, very effective in your writing, and you can also, of course, use these for speaking. Dr. Bruce Wilkinson, The Seven Laws of the Learner. He's giving you the, a lot of the principles, how to, how to teach to people's needs, how to, how to teach so that people will apply what you've learned. And again, this can be used for either speaking or writing. If you're really interested, there is a DVD set of course, he is a Christian, and there is going to be some Christian stuff in this. Now, I taught this to a whole community along with the GBC. And what we did was we would show part of the videos and then teach it. And then I've also taught it without videos, just on my own. In London, we had a uh, 16 sessions of two hours each. So we had one session to learn the theory, and then one session to practice, and one session to learn the theory, and one session to practice. I also teach individual modules of this. So I just teach, you know, how, how, to, how to teach to people's needs, how to teach so people will apply, how to teach so people will remember, and so forth. Obviously, I don't have time to do all that now. So I would really suggest that you study this. Then Communicating for a Change by Andy Stanley. Now, Andy Stanley is also a Christian preacher. And he obviously read and, and imbibed Seven Laws of the Learner. You, you can tell that he's basing what he's done on Dr. Wilkinson. Dr. Wilkinson, by the way, is, of anybody that I've met in the Hare Krishna movement, out of the Hare Krishna movement, theist, atheist, the most amazing, empowered teacher. I certainly have not met a more amazing, empowered teacher. And his, his techniques for teaching the truths of the Bible and knowledge of the Bible are just absolutely incredible. This guy is just, is really, really, really empowered. I mean, unfortunately, he's sort of into karma yoga instead of bhakti yoga, but he's, he's, he's really, really an empowered, empowered teacher, and there's so much you can learn from him. And I know a lot of devotees who use a lot of his insights in their own writing and their own teaching. So I just, I highly, highly, highly recommend it with just no reservations at all. I mean, you've got to, you, you know, you have to be aware he's going to use Christian allusions. He's going to allude to stories in the Bible and, and so forth. Um, but other than that, the, the principles that he's teaching are completely uh, spot on, and he's really an expert. And the programs that he's put together to teach people the Bible and teach people Christian principles based on his understandings here are just wonderful. And I, I, I'm, I'm hoping someday we can do that for our own scriptures and for Srila Prabhupada's books to that extent that he's done. So these are some references. All right, so what did we talk about so far? We talked about that you have to know your audience, you have to know what they need, that you have to follow this, right? And this is right from 
Dr. Wilkinson, what I'll be reading right here. Right here. This is the, the, the internal process that your reader should be going through as they're reading what you write. Now, we're talking primarily here about you know, an, an, an essay, but it could be also in the form of a narrative. We're talking about something that's fairly short. We're not talking about a, a novel or a 500-page book, which would have a little different trajectory because you're not going to have a 500-page book and give people what they need only in the last 20 pages. Right? It's going to be structured a little differently. But here we're talking about a short piece. Yes, most of us are writing are short pieces. This needs to be the psychological process that your readers go through. This needs to be the psychological process that your readers go through. Uh, cursive Knowledge is talked a lot about by Chip and Dan Heath. How to get free of the Cursive Knowledge, which is... It's, it's such a huge problem I see in devotees writing. Such a huge problem. That they, they assume that people want to know what they want to say. And they assume that people already have the background knowledge that they have. Right? Even I had that here and you had to say to me, no, no, people don't know that. Right? It, it's just, it's so common. We're not aware of our own, um, of, of what are our own assumptions in our life. All right, another... Um, way you can think of structuring, which comes right from Andy Stanley, and is, is another way to understand this. This is right from Andy Stanley. That's basically the same thing that I told you before, but in another little different structure. So this is especially if your readers don't really know you. You know, if you're doing a regular column, you may not have to do this. But here you're, you're sort of introducing yourself, but you're introducing yourself as having the same felt need or the same problem that they It's a little easier than getting right into, you know, you don't want to get, you, one thing you don't want to do, oh my God, you don't want to go, you all have this problem, don't you? <laughs> Please don't do that. And what do you, you don't come right out with just the problem. So I'm sure a lot of you are really having problems in your relationships. Oh, do, do, do. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Okay. Remember, we talked about, about bringing out the feeling. So it's very good to start with me. Good for your humility <laughs> and for your connection and to make it real. To make it real. Got to be real. People, people are not interested in something that's not authentic. So it's good to start with me. You don't always have to start with me. You can start with me. But don't start with you. Start with we. You know, that... that 
I lived in the ashram and I worried about what would happen when I would get old or you know I was and you can start out with some dialogue also a little story that you know I, I heard a story about so and so who dedicated her life to spirituality and then when she got old she was just put in old age home and nobody went to see her and I was wondering you know is that what's going to happen to me is no one going to care about me anymore and we, we, we may find that we're so concerned we 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 may find that we're so concerned when our children have to go to college and it's going to be so expensive and working so hard and how am I going to have time for my spiritual life? And we're just thinking, oh, someday in the future, they'll finally get all my debts paid off and all my obligations done and then I can go to Vrindavan and just chant Hare Krishna. Okay. You follow? And we, we look at the people who seem to just have no anxieties about these things and we wonder how did they do that? See some people who just seem to go on serving Krishna without ever worrying about their maintenance and their security. So then, what does God say about? What does the Shastra say? So of course, for that you have to know the Shastra. Radical idea. We we also get a, a lot of articles to back to God by people who obviously don't know the Shastra. They have nothing in there from the Shastra. I say read widely, but my dear friends, that has to be your, your cherry on the top of the icing on the top of the cake. So you don't want something just from modern psychology and you don't want just something just from modern sociology or just from your own experience that doesn't have any value. So we get some people who just quote Shastra. The whole thing is just one quote after another. We get some of that. Um, but more often we get people who don't have any reference to Shastra or don't have any grounding in Shastra or they just tell some sort of story or you know it's just a string of stories so how does, how does Krishna say what, is, what does Krishna say is the answer to the problem what does he say to do how, do you, how does he say to deal with it how does, how does Krishna deal in the Bhagavad Gita with this problem about worrying for security because huh was that all he says What else does he say? He says, near Yoga Shema Atmavan, in 243 or 45. And then he says, Yoga Shema Vahamya, in 922. Both Yoga Shema. And he talks over and over again, Krishna talks about this. Don't be worried about gain and safety. Fight for the sake of fighting. So, and, and then how do you do that? And Prabhupada's talking about in the purports about how you do that and how the sadhus done it and how do other people do it. What does that mean? What am I going to be? What do I have to do? Okay, so this is the, the theory, you could say. Here we're getting into the principles and the theories. I don't mean theories in the sense that they're not true. Do you follow what I'm saying? The concepts, you could say. I'll call it concepts. The principles, the concepts, the idea. And here we're getting into the concrete and the specifics. Please give people specifics, folks. Please, 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 please. Don't just tell people, just be Krishna conscious. Don't tell people, just chant Hare Krishna. Don't tell people that. New people won't know what to do and no people will roll their eyes at you. If you said to me, Ramila, the, the solution to all your problems is to be Krishna conscious. Okay. <laughs> right? And if someone's new, they'll just go, well, what do I do with that? 
when I when I first visited the second time I visited a temple, I asked the devotee. I said, "I love this philosophy. What can I do to practice it?" And she didn't tell me anything. She didn't tell me anything. She said, "We don't have any room in the ashram. You'll have to get your own apartment." That's all she told me. I mean, that was my bad, my lack of sukriti, my bad karma. But you know, don't do that to people. And so the the new people don't know what to do. They have no idea what to do. And the people who've been around for a while go, can you give me step by step by step? What do I do? And you want to give people what do I do in preferably all three areas. Behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. Right? Thinking, feeling, willing. Thinking, feeling, willing. What do I do? What do I do on the bodily level? How do I change my thoughts? What do I do with my feelings and desires? Behavior and desires. And then here, give them a nice picture. Here, you gave them the picture of the problem. Here, you give them the picture of the solution. Just reading how Pritchard Maharaj treated his wife like half of his body. Suppose all the husbands in his country treated their wife as half of their body. What kind of a society would be? What kind of a society would be? You're always nice to half your body. Anybody mean to half their body? I don't like this half my body. So that's the bottom we. The bottom we is, is, is a vision. It's a vision. What could it be like? All right. Any questions so far? Because now we're going to go on to a very, 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 very different area of writing. Is there yes. a maximum length an article should be? That's entirely up to the magazine editors. For me personally, if I read something that's more than two pages, I get bored. In, uh, in, in a magazine situation. Generally, though, that means that it's it's not such engaging writing. Although, what's happening now with the internet, I'm going to hesitate to say, but probably is our 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 interest in reading long things is decreasing. You know, I, I find personally with the internet, and I've been a reader my whole life. I've been a crazy reader my whole life. I love to read. But I found with the internet, you read something and then you go to something else, and then you read something and you go to something else, and to stay with something for a long time is very difficult. When I read on my Kindle, and I, it, which has no, this has no connection with the internet, I can't get online with this. Well, I can get online to buy a book from Amazon, but I can't, like, get online. That then I can just read. Then I can read for hours, like I used to. But most of us, especially younger people who maybe never even had that experience. They've only read online. Um, they're not used to reading something long. I was just, uh, my son wants to write a nonfiction book, and he asked me to do some research. And one place I read said, don't have the book be more than 100 pages, which is a small book. I mean, I just published like a 97-page book on chanting Hare Krishna. 
and one of the it got just got translated into Portuguese, and they were selling it in Brazil and having me sign copies, which was really cool. <laughs> I, was, I was definitely enjoying that. But one of the devotees, more than one of the devotees, came up to me and said, one, what I really like about the book is that it's short. I said, wow, you said in just a few words what other people take 500 pages to say. It's like, oh, that's interesting. So people are going with shorter. Definitely. In BTG, our maximum length is usually 2,500 words. And back to God, that's a full-length article. And our photo articles are maximum 1,200 words. It's pretty hard to develop an idea in less than, than 700 to 1,000 words. When I used to do the education column, they wanted it to be on one page. You know, that was 700 to 1,000 words. And that's a real challenge to develop an idea. One of the more interesting bits of writing that I did was when I was writing for ISKCON Interactive, which is a uh, multimedia map of ISKCON, all different areas. Hardly anybody has that, but it's... So I love showing it on my computer because hardly anybody has ever seen it. It's something new. Uh, but the way that they structured it was there were all different topics and you had to fit it into a, a, a box on the screen. So, okay, explain karma in a box. Gave me a new appreciation for the people who write the things in museums that are on the... <laughs> I never thought about it before. Yeah, you just, what is a tiger? And you explain it in this little box. And I appreciate it now. Because just one letter off, then it would be off the box. So you had to structure your, where you put your words and which words you used and things like that. To try to, that's, it's a good exercise to do that kind of thing, by the way, to try to make a complex point in a few sentences. Another good exercise is writing poetry. When you, if you write good poetry, it makes you use all of the literary ornaments, which you can then bring to your prose. Anything else? On, on what I've already talked about, because I'm going to talk about other things now. Yeah. Um, There's two methods that you gave us, the me, me, God, you, and the other one. Uh, I'm thinking how to apply to different types of articles. Like, for example, I'm supposed to write about um, um, Afro-Fordham Bridgeport's visit to South Africa in, in general. So how would I take something like that? And, you know, how does Amarish's visit to South Africa relate to people's, to the things people worry about when they go through their day? That's your first question. How does it? How does Ambarisha's visit to South Africa relate to what people worry about and think about and hope for and dream about in their day? I'm asking. Well, he's successful. Okay. He's money. He's okay. Money. So here, here's somebody who's both materially successful and a devotee. Okay. That might be one angle. That might be one angle. Oh, I should say, I should have said, one angle per article. One point per article. One, only one, only one, 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 not two, not three, not ten. One point per article. One point per article. One. It can have subpoints, it can have sub subpoints, but you one point that you can write in a sentence that is a statement one 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 per article per speech 
one, only one. There's lots of time. We're all eternal. You can make your other point <laughs> later. <laughs> the worst, the worst class I ever went to was a devotee giving a Sunday feast class where he tried to teach the whole philosophy in 45 minutes. The result is he taught nothing. So that could be one angle. One angle could be that people are definitely interested in how can I be most people. There are a few devotees that don't care about whether or not they're a success in the world. There are a handful of devotees like that. But the vast majority of people do not want to be a material failure. They just don't. Whether they should or they shouldn't feel that way, that's how they feel. I don't want to be a material failure. Anybody here want to be a material failure? You don't care. So most of us really, you know, I, I really don't. I mean, if Krishna does, okay, we accept it. But it's not like I don't care. I can't say I don't care. I do care. I, I don't want to live on the street with only a blanket. I don't want to. I mean, if Krishna does that to me, then I'll try to accept and be happy with that. But that's not what I want. I, I want to have reasonable health. I want to have a, a, a decent, clean place to go to sleep. <laughs> You know, I want to have a clean set of clothes to put on in the morning. I, I, I want that. Now, I, I may not want to be as rich as Ambarish, but I want to have, be, to have a material life that's reasonably comfortable and successful. And most people do. Yes? Yes? We're not supposed to admit this in the Hare Krishna movement? <laughs> We're not allowed to admit that that's how we feel? But I also want to be Krishna conscious. And throughout Srila Prabhupada's books, he talks about how to be, and Krishna talks about, third chapter, to live happily and attain liberation, right? Be thou happy by the sacrifice, by which you can live happily and attain liberation. And Prabhupada, throughout his books, talks about how a Krishna-conscious society is a materially happy society. And, and what kind of attractive preaching is it? We're going to make the whole world Krishna-conscious, and then everybody will live in poverty and distress. <laughs> Okay. So if we're going to say to people that it's entirely possible to be materially a very successful person, of course, Ambarish is a little funny because he didn't work for his money. He inherited it. But still, he's a materially successful person in the world. He's a respected person in the world. He hasn't stopped that. He hasn't walked away from it. He hasn't had to renounce it. But he's used it in Krishna's service. And that's a model for how I can use whatever I have in Krishna's service and I don't have to feel that... It's absolutely necessary for me to walk around with only a loincloth eating r- discarded rice from the gutters of Jagannath Puri <laughs> in order to be a pure devotee. Yes? Is that real? Is that a real concern? Is that something that maybe keeps some of us from surrendering as much as we could have because we're really afraid if I really surrender? I've got to just wear a loincloth. I mean, a woman, I guess we get to wear a little bit more than that. And, and just, you know, and, and just eat the rejected rice in Jagadath Puri. So, yeah, that could be one angle. That could be one angle. Then Ambarish is giving us a very practical example. Okay? Well, we could be another angle that ties into people's real concerns. Do people want to know the answer to that question? Do they? Do new people want to know the answer to that question? If I become a devotee of Krishna, do I have to live in the street and eat rejected rice? Yes. 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 Do people who've been devotees 20, 30, 40 years want to know the answer to that question? Yes. yes. So you've got a broad audience, 
Okay? You're going you're to be hitting the real needs and real concerns of a broad audience with this example. What other need could you, could you hit on? What other theme could you get? Oh, okay. Making a contribution with our talents and our abilities. That's also huge. That's also huge. I find a misunderstanding often among devotees that if I like what I do and I'm good at what I do, then it's Maya. Which is a really strange idea of God, you know, that, that the surrender God wants you to do is to be miserable. So that... <laughs> That, that Ambarish has he has his talents, he has his abilities, he has his money, and we can also make that we can also make some contribution with whatever we have, whatever we have something to contribute. Okay, good. Another angle. And that's not the same theme. It's a different theme. It's related, but it's not the same. What would be another one? Well, overall looking at the Hare Krishna news, it's directed towards Hindus and people interested in that at least. Okay. I would say the Vedic planetarium itself, the temple itself. What does that have to do with people's needs and worries and concerns when they're going through their day? Well, there's some magnificent place to worship, which Hindus, I think, appreciate. What are their needs and concerns? Is there a God? Is there a God? Okay. So that's like a kind of symbolic manifestation a God in a certain line of belief. But the temple is there to just fulfill our desires, material desires. Okay, give me a need and concern. The harmony between science and religion. Oh, very nice. <laughs> very nice. Now this, this ties into, it's related to, but again, it's not the same as, can I be both materially successful and Krishna conscious? It's very related, although it's not exactly the same. And it would, you'd come at it from a different angle. Because especially many of the Hindus are, are up there in the maths and the sciences. Yes? And, and especially many of the ethnic Indian Hindus. They don't want to be known as ignorant, uncivilized fools, you know, still hanging on to this primitive religion. Yes? Am I correct? So then it would be of some interest that, and this, particularly for Indian Hindus, I think you can go at it with this angle if this is your main audience that here we can see how um, India has really contributed to science and mathematics, how there's a, science, a scientific basis for our beliefs that they're not just a bunch of superstitious myths about, you know, elephant-headed creatures. And it's not, it's not just some weird, superstitious, mythological stories that your grandmother tells and has nothing to do with rockets going into outer space. So I think there, there's a need, to, that we have a need for authenticity we have a need for understanding and knowledge, and people are concerned that they want to make sure that what they believe in also makes logical sense and is scientifically sound. Also, people have a desire to be successful. Yes. And unreasonable personifies a different perspective on success. Well, that's, I think that's almost the same thing. That was what we talked about, to be a successful person. If you can't tie what you're writing about to somebody's needs, you shouldn't write it. Writing about the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium because I think you should be interested in the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium, please don't do that. Those articles are boring, 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 and more boring. 
and just show that we're, you know, irrelevant. You can always relate any spiritual topic to people's real needs. You must be able to. Otherwise, what's the, what's the value of our spiritual philosophy if it doesn't relate to people's real needs? If we say, here's a topic that doesn't relate to anybody's real needs, what are we saying? Here's a topic you should read, but it has nothing to do with anything you care about. <laughs> you, do you follow? But you should listen and you should pay attention. Well, why? <laughs> See, what's, what's happening is that it's meeting some need of the writer. But the writer is not aware of what needs it's meeting in that. They haven't articulated it. And perhaps some of this is our own hesitancy to, to even say that we have desires and we have needs because we're not supposed to or something. Or we're, just, we're all just supposed to be interested in things just because they're spiritual. But that, that's not real. That's not, I'm not interested in things just because they're spiritual. Just because I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to be interested in this. But interest in something, it's, it's a feeling. You can't be supposed to be interested in something. This doesn't work. I'm supposed to be interested in this. Okay. All right. You know, how long are you going to do that? Then after a while, you'll start reading Krishna conscious stuff, and you'll start watching the movies, which are much more engaging than somebody talking about something just because they think you're supposed to. So you, you want to sometimes, well, why, why am I interested in this? What's interesting me about this? What's, what's grabbing me about this? Which of my needs is it meeting? And how will this relate to other people? Take the time to do this. Once you get accustomed to it, it'll come so easily to you. But take the time to do this with any topic, especially if you're given a topic. I hate being given a topic. Especially if you're given a topic. What? I have to know my audience. Who are my Who are my audience? What are they thinking about? What is going through their mind in the course of a day, the course of a typical day? What I have to say about topics is that we, for example, in the Hydration News, we have a standing thing that writers can submit ideas, but rarely do we ever get an idea submitted. Mm. Like rarely. Usually, you assign topics. Yeah. So uh, in that sort of situation. It's it's a little harder, but even when people submit things, they tend not to make them relevant. I mean, we get we get submissions to back to God. At hardly one in in fifty submissions are written in such a way that they have anything to do with the needs and concerns of the audience. Hardly one in fifty. The the person writing just assumes that everybody should be interested in what they have to say because they should be. Because they should be, because they should be. You know, they'll just start off, there are three modes of material nature. Goodness is like this, passion is like this, ignorance is like, why should I care? Why do I want to know? What good will it do me? How is this going to relate to how I'm, you know, the fact that I have to fix my carburetor? And the fact that I'm worried that my son's going to fail in school? And, you know, how, how, what am I going to do with that? And the fact that I have to go to work at 6 in the morning and I'm, I'm struggling to chant my rounds at 8 o'clock at night. And what is the most material night track? Well, it has a lot to do with it. But, but the, the, it's the writer's responsibility to take the Shastra and bring it to the person. I see that it's our responsibility. It's like you take the Shastra 
and you shine light behind it, and you make it real for people. It's got to be real for people. And then people will want to be devotees of Krishna. Oh, if I'm a devotee of Krishna, then it gives me the key to everything in my life. And then eventually, of course, you don't have a material life anymore. Your life has become spiritualized. But this, it's, it's, that's why I spend so much time on this. It's the number one problem. I mean, you can teach people how to write introduction and body and conclusion and put in transitions and, and have interesting writing styles and use literary ornaments, and I'm not going to teach you that today. But you, you're writing to communicate, you're writing to have a connection, you're writing for yoga. You're writing for, as Prabhupada said in the teachings of Green Kunti, soul to soul, the other super soul. You want to connect with your reader. You want to connect with your reader. You want to make it real for your reader. Now, it's true. If I already know Ambarish, which I do, you know, if Ambarish is a friend of mine, then I might be interested in this trip to South Africa. Or if I'm already interested in the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium, which I personally am, if I've already been following the design of the temple, if I already have some interest in science and Krishna consciousness, if I've already read all of Sataputta's books, which I have many more than once, if I've already been involved with the committee discussions about how they're going to do the chandelier, which I have, and I already know all the people that are concerned with it and all the debates going on behind the scenes about what are they going to do this and that, which I do have, and I've already been to Mayapur and I've already looked at the... Then I'm going to be interested that Ambarish comes and talks about the Beta Planetarium. You don't have to connect it to my knees because it's already connected. And I might think if I'm writing the article that everybody else also knows Ambarish and everybody else has already read Sadaputta's books three times and already everybody else already has talked to Charnarainu about what the planetarium design is and everybody else has already argued with Harisari about whether or not we should use Charnarainu's or, you know, and not to because, you know, I, I might think that everybody else has already done that and therefore they're naturally going to be interested in what I'm interested in, but they're not. You follow? Does that make sense? Ambarish came and talked about the Temple of the Vedic Planetarium. So what? You know, I'm more interested in the, the stock report. And the, you follow? Okay. All right. Now we're going to about organizing ourselves. So sometimes you write a first draft, the whole first draft in one sitting, if you're like really inspired. I personally do a lot of my pre-writing in my head. I do a lot of my pre-writing when I take Joppa walks, not when I'm chanting Joppa, when I'm taking the walk, not at the same time that I'm chanting Joppa, when I'm in a car, when I'm talking to people, when... I'm seeing what the headlines in the news are, when I'm listening to a class, when I'm reading a purport, when people are coming to me with their problems, when I'm dealing with my own problems. I'm doing a lot of pre-writing then, and sometimes I can spend 15 years pre-writing an article. 15 years? Yes, I have spent 15 years pre-writing an article. My article on birth control and back to Godhead was 15 years of preparation. I remember that Huh? I remember that article. I love it. Oh, thank you. It's now very controversial <laughs> because of one statement in there about homosexuality. It's a very controversial article. When it was written, homosexuality wasn't a controversial topic. <laughs> and now it is. So sometimes people will post it on websites and then they always, now they have to put a little disclaimer or they have to take that sentence out. So, um, 
you know, I, I started writing, I started doing the pre-writing for my article on the elements when I was going swimming and I was going through the water and I was chanting Hare Krishna as I was going through the water and I was meditating on water. And sometimes, sometimes things just come together and you just sit down and write that first draft and you don't quite know how you did it and it just sort of happens. And other times you write a paragraph and then you go away for a week and then you come back and write another paragraph and then you go away for a month and then you come back and write a whole set of things. So my articles on chanting, which now is the book, so for that I researched for one and a half years. So I researched especially through, through Prabhupada's purports and Bhaktivinoda Thakur's books on chanting and some of the books on chanting that were written by Iskand devotees and then I made extensive notes on each of the offenses from all the books and then I compiled it and then after doing that pre-writing and planning I went to write each draft and what I usually do is I usually write most or all of the first draft at one sitting and then I go back and, and fix it and change it but sometimes I'll write half and then I'll go back and write the other half and then I'll move things around and I take some time with it and I, I find for me I have to have a resting time I need to have at least 24 hours after I've so-called finished my first draft before I touch it again. I have, to, I have to get away from it and get perspective. I would never, ever, 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 ever want to write a first draft, then edit it, then send it in, all the same. And a week is even better, but at least 24 hours rest we have one writer who, I understand why he does it, but it's actually quite annoying. He'll, he'll send in to us for approval a first draft, and then it's really a first draft. <laughs> he hasn't done the resting, and he hasn't done the editing. It's his first draft. And he makes us editors do that. He makes us do that. And then he sends in his second first draft. And then he sends in up to four or five first drafts. And after a while, you're tired of reading the same article in so many drafts. And you're like, you know, Prabhuji, could you please do your own work here? <laughs> so they, they, we, we definitely have, have one writer who does that. And, and I understand why he does it. I mean, it's very helpful to get other people's feedback. And he, he writes, you know, he ends up with beautiful pieces at the end. But you know, I, I like to do that myself. Now, sometimes I have friends who are willing to go over stuff for me. I can't ask them with everything I write, or they wouldn't be my friends anymore. <laughs> but uh, sometimes I will say, you know, would you be willing to review this for me and give me your feedback? Especially if there's certain parts of it that I'm, I'm really not sure if, if, it, if it makes sense. But I think each of us has to find our own style of writing. I don't think that my style of writing is going to be your style of writing. Like each of us have to find our own style of studying. And it's, it's, we're very individuals, and we have to work individually. But the one thing I can say for everyone is at least, at least 24-hour break. Get some distance from your writing before you go in and edit. And consider that it's done. That you give yourself... Between the, between the time that you say it's done and the time that it's done, give yourself at least 24 hours, preferably even a week. You want to give yourself enough time so you forget what you wrote. <laughs> you know, so you're reading it like you didn't write it. Because you're trying to read it without any of your assumptions. 
you know, when we write, we have underlying assumptions that are tying our ideas together. And, and we understand the logic of our flow. And it may or may not be obvious to somebody else. Our connections between our ideas are sometimes underground. They're not always clear. And someone else may not understanding how we're getting from one point to another or what one thing has to do with the other. So you want to try to read your article as if you're somebody else. And the only way to do that is to get far enough away from it that you forget what you wrote. And then you can try to read it like a stranger. Now, if you're on a very tight deadline, sometimes that's not possible and you have to just rely on other people entirely to do that for you. Definitely someone else has to edit your work finally. You know, I don't know any of us who are totally editors of our own work. The person who came the closest to that, two people for Back to God were Ravinda Sarup and Sadaputa. Ravinda Sarup and Sadaputa's articles would get published almost exactly as they wrote them. I haven't seen anybody else's articles that that's happened to. Now, Ravinda Sarupu has a very unusual writing style, which is one reason it takes him 10 gazillion years to write something. He writes every sentence he told me four to six times. And it takes him hours and hours and hours to write a paragraph. So that's his particular style. The result of that is that he doesn't need much editing after it, if at all. So seriously, he'll, he would submit an article, and, and what we got submitted and what got printed were sometimes exactly identical. But it doesn't happen to anybody else. With everybody else, the editors go through and and change it. And the editors especially change the part that you like the most that you wrote. <laughs> but that was... <laughs> you could have changed anything else not that one. <laughs> that sentence, I was going to have it engraved. <laughs> you know, and then, then the editors say... Well, that's really like cutesy, huh? When you edit, you want to edit, of course, for meaning, for relevance, for meaning, and for clarity. The main thing that you generally have to, at least that I have to edit my work for, is mostly for clarity. So you want to look for meaning, is, 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 am I saying what I want to say? Is it logical, does it flow? Is it clear? Will somebody else understand, you know, will the package be delivered intact, basically? I'm unloading it from my mind onto the truck and then it gets offloaded into your mind. And do you get in your mind what I loaded in my mind? I, I, I find it always fascinating how people get very different messages from what I speak and what I write than my intention, which is sometimes wonderful. I mean, sometimes you're just sort of, wow, Krishna, that's interesting. They'll say, oh, I loved what you wrote because when you talked about this, I got this and this message. I'm like, I didn't put that in there. <laughs> and sometimes it's wonderful. And you're just like, okay, Krishna, you know, you used me to... To tell somebody something, yes? So you don't consider that a fail? Oh, no, I consider that a success. Now, if people misunderstand what I say such that they get bewildered, that's a fail. But if people get something out of what I say that I didn't intend, but that's also Krishna conscious and it's also wonderful, yeah, that's fantastic. I love that. That's 
I don't I don't mind Krishna using me in ways that of which I'm not aware. I don't I don't mind that at all. I kind of think it's cool. So if there if there are you know collateral benefits that I wasn't aware at all, it happens quite a lot, in fact. Or I find that what people get the most out of is often something that for me was a little aside or a little tangent or a little this is particularly more speaking than writing, but but where it's something where it wasn't my main message. Yeah. It was it was a little tag. And sometimes it's that that really affects people. So I, I just kind of think that's cool. But I've got to do my part as Krishna's instrument to make sure that there's, the meaning is clear, that there's, there's good flow, that there's, again, engagement and interest. I'm really, again, looking for, is the reader going to be engaged? Are they going to want to finish the article? Is it something they can use? Is it something that they can remember? So if a reader, for example, reads your article and gets a very sideline point and it's not your major idea that you want to put forward, do you feel the need to try to push that idea forward? No. I mean, if most of my readers did that most of the time, then I got doing yeah. something wrong. Yeah. But if that happens sometimes, then... I've, I've come to trust that the readers and the hearers are who they're supposed to be and that Krishna arranges who's going to be there. And Krishna arranges what message they're going to get. And I've really learned to trust that, that I don't need to try to control that at all. I just need to be an instrument. And I'm going to let Krishna take care of that. I mean, some things are... are Irritating. Romila, I love your articles. Oh, which one? I don't do that too often because it's kind of nasty. But <laughs> every once in a while, I'm in a very demoniac mood and I do that. Oh, which one did you like the best? And then they'll take something written by somebody else. <laughs> happened to be more times than I could count. Uh, I just had a lovely, lovely experience in Ermelo where this one like friend of the movement was came to visit at the devotee's house where I was staying. And he said, Ermila, I'm so happy to meet you after all these years I've been reading your articles. And he went one after another after another. And when you wrote on this article and then you said this and you said that and it really helped me with this and really helped and then that article you wrote about that, and I'm just like, <laughs> that, that's unusual. You know, that I felt like he practically memorized everything that I had written, and he was, he was telling me the points I made and things I wrote 20, 25 years ago, and the different points I made and how it helped him in his life. And don't expect that very often. <laughs> that's not, that's not, um, that's, that's rare. That's rare. Andy Stanley in his book, tells the story with a speech rather than an article of how uh, somebody remembered many, many years later, they'd forgotten his name. They'd forgotten his name. But they saw him somewhere. They said, didn't you give that speech way back? Oh, yeah, he said. And then they, they, they repeated back to him the main one point of his speech, <laughs> which was, if you want to know why, submit and apply. That was his main point. 
If you want to know why, submit and apply. The guide remembered it 10 years later, even though he'd forgotten the name of the speaker. So I see that as the ultimate success. Let people forget me. Everyone's going to forget me anyway. You're all going to be forgotten, my dear friends, except by God. Except by God, we're all going to be forgotten. I always ask people who remembers the name of their great-great-grandparents, and I hardly ever get anybody that does. That's our grandchildren's grandchildren. That's not that long from now. Our names will be forgotten. You know, but the message can still be there, and people can go on still. Somebody may not remember where they got that inspiration from, but then they'll go and repeat it to someone else, and people will be affected. Okay, the last point I wanted to make about editing is working with other editors and proofreaders. And it's probably one of the, the biggest challenges that we have as editors for Back to Godhead is that people don't like ever hearing that anything they've done is led anything less than perfect. And it's, I see that our writing, it, it, it's kind of like our children, that people very much see their writing like their children. And as a teacher, one of the most difficult things was ever to tell anybody that there was anything wrong with their child. It's, it's probably the most difficult part of being a teacher, that you have to meet with parents sometimes and say your child has a problem with this or your child has a problem with that. And most parents become very angry and very offended, and they may take their child out of the school and blame the school. It's just extremely difficult to tell parents there's something wrong with your child. And similarly, it's very difficult to tell writers that there's anything wrong with their writing. I've met so many devotees who said, well, I'll never write for Back to Godhead. Well, why not? Well, I wrote an article and it was rejected. And sometimes it wasn't even rejected. I've had people tell me that. Senior devotees. I wrote an article that was rejected and I said, Prabhu wasn't rejected. I said, we gave you three suggestions for minor changes. We loved the article. Well, it didn't sound to me that why you loved it. You know, and, and this is this is a serious problem. That as soon as we tell somebody, make three minor changes. This sentence isn't clear. You know, this this thing doesn't flow here. Fix that. Oh, my article's been rejected. With that one devotee, I had to say, Prabhu, we really want to publish it. He said, Well, I just can't fix it. <laughs> and then I said, Well, is it all right, Prabhu, if I fix it? I said, suppose I fix it, I show it to you, you approve, and then you can resubmit it with my fixing. He said, okay. So that's what we did. We ended up publishing it. But it's, it seems to be such an ego thing. And, and look, I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to have my favorite sentence in the, in the piece and my favorite paragraph taken out and just go, okay. If that's the only way it's going to get published. And I, I know what it feels like. And I know what it feels like to have the other editors say, this part is, is not clear. And the worst, for me anyway, the worst for my ego and my identity <coughs> as a good devotee, is when they say, this is bogus. <laughs> That's, wow. Wait, so that you told that? Of course. That somebody will say, wait a minute, you know, I don't think this, this isn't philosophically sound. Of course they are. Feed widely. Huh? 
But no, I've put things in articles, and some of the others, other editors have say, I don't think this is modified. Of course they have. We all say that to each other. We sure do. And that's very hard to take. It's very hard to take. You know, after a while, it gets easier. <laughs> Seriously, after a while, you, you realize that that's one of the reasons you're submitting it to an editorial board. And you come to appreciate. I mean, I just uh, recently was part of a group that had an interchange with one very senior devotee. And uh, one GBC member on the group asked this very senior person, who is far junior to the GBC member, and far junior to most of us on the group, uh, what exactly are you doing? You've, you've advertised that you're doing such and such program, and what exactly are you teaching? What exactly are you doing? And this person did not want to say what they were doing. Well, you come to the program and see for yourself. And the GBC member and other senior members said, please tell us exactly what you're doing. Describe it in a paragraph. The person wouldn't do it. And I wrote, I said, one of the benefits of being in ISKCON is that there are other people that are going to ask you, is this bona fide? What are you doing? What are you teaching? And you've either got to fix it or you've, or you've got to stop. And if you don't want to do that, then don't be in ISKCON and start your own movement. And then you don't have anybody asking you if it's bona fide. And then you can do what you want. And there are people who've done that. Most of them change something. Yes? So as writers, we need to be willing to have somebody say, I don't think that's bona fide. And you'll end up with a better piece of writing for it. Now, if you're not willing to be challenged, then start your own publication and, and don't work with editors and you know start your own blog and whatever. But I see it as, as a real benediction. Although the first few times it happens, it is hard. Me? Say something that's not bona fide? Of course not. I'm God. Everything I say is bona fide. You know? But, you know, I'm not God. I'm not God. And it's not that everything out of my mouth is Shastra. It's not that everything that comes out of my mouth is the absolute truth. It's not that all my realizations are the same as God. What a revelatory thought. You know? And it's, it's, it's wonderful. And it's, it's something to, be, to appreciate and to celebrate that we have other devotees who can say to us, is that bona fide? Is that bona fide? I was just in, in Bloomington, and the, it's a couple that run the center there. So the wife, not only does she arrange the boga beautifully on Krishna's plate, but she arranges the prasadam beautifully on the, in the serve-out plates. So I said, this shows your high class. I said, low-class people, when they serve food, they ask, did you get enough? High class, middle class people, they say, did it taste good? And high class people, they say, did you like the arrangement? <laughs> so her husband overheard me, and he came and he said, is that Shastra? I said, no, it's sociology. <laughs> and he said, oh, was it okay that I asked? I said, no, please ask. I said, I should have said from the get-go what my source was. So we have a lot of articles submitted that are 90 95% from mundane sources. We have articles people submit that are coming from mundane sources and then try to justify it with Shastra. We, we won't print articles like that, Jim. And I'm sure people are offended. We say, I'm sorry, this is back to Godhead. It's got to be authorized. You've got to start with Shastra. You can't start with something else. You can, you can bring in psychology, you can bring in sociology, you can bring in history, you can bring in science, that's fine, but you've got to start with Shastra. And generally, people get offended. 
And they're just like, you know, why, why do I have to be glorified? Because you're writing for Back to Godhead. That's why you have to be glorified. And, and, but people get very, very offended. And I understand it because I have felt offended. You feel like someone's attacking your identity. And you feel like someone's attacking your um, integrity. And we, you know, we want to have this, this mask that I'm a person of integrity. We're not people of integrity. We wouldn't be in the material world, frankly. We're all criminals. Probably said if you're stealing a cucumber, you're stealing a diamond, you're still a thief. So it's, it's a lot better to start out with the idea that I'm a criminal, I'm a person with zero integrity, and by Prabhupada's grace, I'm trying to become a person of integrity. And if somebody corrects me and somebody helps me to become the person of integrity and become who I really am and, and realize myself, that that's helpful. But, yeah, that's, that's what it means to work with editors and proofreaders. And, and I know it's one of the reasons we have trouble finding writers. We have trouble getting enough information is that people do not like, they don't like to be told that what they've written is not relevant. They don't like to be told that what they've written is not bona fide. They don't like to be told that what they've written is poor writing. But please, like, sorry to be so American, get over it. <laughs> you know, really get over it. It is hard. It is so hard. Even people who have been writing for Back to Godhead for 25, 30 years still react with ego and defensiveness when they are corrected by the editors. Even sometimes among the editors, that because some of us editors also write for the magazine. And sometimes even among us, if we say, is this bona fide, the person's hackles will rise and they'll defend themselves. So it's extremely, extremely difficult. When the editors you know, say you should make a change, go and breathe for a while. Don't just write a reply or get on the phone and, you know, if you feel defensive. Just go breathe, go chant a few rounds and meditate on Krishna running in the fields of Vrindavan with Balaram. <laughs> no. As seriously, just, just get away from it and, and, and maybe pray a bit and Krishna, okay, let this, because it is, I don't know exactly why it's so hard, but it, is, it seems to be extremely, extremely difficult. Of all the areas in which we have to correct people, they're writing, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's me or something. It's, it's me, and it's, it's my integrity, and it's my identity, and it's my baby. And it, it's so, so, so hard. Oh, one, of our one of the devotees who's both a regular writer and an editor, Chaitanya Charan Prabhu, from Chalpati, who's, um, I think he's in his 40s, Brahmachari. And I've met him personally once. But he's, a, he's an exemplar of what to do. So he submits, like all of us editors who also write, probably utmost a half of what he submits actually gets published. See, also most writers don't understand that. You know, if, if we reject one of their articles, they never want to write again. And I'll say to them, you know, we editors don't get all of our articles published. I have a whole stack, not literal anymore because it's electronic, but I have a whole stack of articles for BTG that have been rejected, that have not been published. I give you one example. I, I gave a, a, a class in Radhadesh, a regular Bhagavatam class, where the verse was about the Brahma Gayatri Mantra. That was the topic of that Bhagavatam verse. 
So it was a class for which I did an unusually large amount of research, much more than I generally do to give a Bhagavad Gita class. I spent many, many hours researching for that class. And I ended up taking my notes and, and putting them into the computer for a future class. And then I had a, a devotee who transcribed the class for me. And I took the class and made it into an article. So the other editors objected. We don't want an article in Back to Godhead about Gaitri, about the Brahma Gaitri Mantra. We don't think this is a suitable topic for Back to Godhead. So obviously I disagreed, or else I wouldn't have written it. But they weren't willing to run it. And and then I said, well, suppose I wrote another four articles about the other, uh, so it'd be about all five aspects of diksha. Then would you, could you run it? They said yes, but I haven't done it. You know, I haven't sat down and write the other, written the other four articles. So that article's never been published. They just said we don't think the topic is suitable for our audience. Even though I said, well, we know, most of our audience are Indians, and most Indians have heard of the Brahma Gayatri mantra. There's tons of YouTube videos where people are singing it. You know, it's it's a very known mantra. I said our audience are the you know the Hindus and the New Age yoga types. They've practically all heard of the Brahma Mantra. Why not give our Krishna conscious explanation of it? Why not give our Shastra? But they weren't convinced. So, you know, another one ages ago, oh my God, this was eons ago, I wrote an article about how to teach Sanskrit, and Jai Doitamar said, again, I don't think that's a suitable topic for Bhaktivedanta. So, Chaitanya Charan is, is one, of the, one of the persons who really exemplifies that we can say to him, this isn't a suitable topic. It isn't Shastric enough. You know, it's, it has problems with philosophy. It has problems with this. And he'll just say, okay. And he never gets offended. And he never argues back. And he goes on and submit. Either he fixes it or he discards it and goes on and writes something else. He's a brilliant writer. He's a big fan of he is a brilliant writer. But you should know that a lot of his articles went through a lot of changes mm-hmm. before they were published. And there was a lot of back and forth, and there was a lot of there was a lot of editing. And many of his articles have gone through four and five drafts with the editors, plus the final editing from Nagaraj before they get published. And he's very open and humble in that process, which the rest of us, I must say, are not always. But yes, that's why it's so good at the end. Yes, yes. And I try to explain this to other writers. I mean, I, I don't remember which one it was, but there was one article that, that I submitted that went through six drafts, and then it was rejected. It never even got published. You know, the editors would say, make this change, this, so I'd make the change, and I would come up with another draft. No. So, oh, it was a Sanskrit article. No, so went through six drafts. And finally, Jaidori Jamarj just said, you know, I don't like the topic. <laughs> Could have told me that in the first place, but I don't think he knew that in the first place. You know, at first he said, there's not enough Prabhupada. So then I, like, saturated it with Prabhupada. And then he said, there's too much Prabhupada. Okay. You know, and, and, and really, I mean, completely, six completely different drafts, not six tweakings. Six completely different drafts. I have an article on sex desire that still hasn't gotten published. But all this is encouraging us. You know, I, I wrote... I, okay. I mean, I wrote, I wrote the article on sex desire, and I included in it two or three sentences about polygamy. So because of that, the other editors rejected it entirely. They said, we don't want anything about polygamy in Back to God. And I'm like, it's all over the Bible. Okay, fine. 
So then they said, you have to restructure it. And I decided, I was debating, okay, what do I do? Do I just rewrite the article? Because I was also giving it as a seminar. Or do I work on the seminar? So then I spent, I don't know how many hours, at least 50 or 60 hours working on the seminar. And I put together a whole multimedia presentation, in which I don't mention polygamy. But anyway, I put together a whole multimedia presentation on sex desire. So now I have to take the presentation and turn it back into an article. And I have, just haven't done it yet. So it still hasn't gotten published. But that was also a few drafts. And I mean, it was a big argument about, you know, what should be in there. Like, okay, okay, I'll take out those two sentences. All right, fine. But no, we don't want a structure like this. And you have to put in more Shastra. There's not enough Shastra. And you're not substantiating this point. And this, you know, it's a, it was, it's a very touchy subject. And, and now that I've worked on the seminar and I've given the seminar, I can, I can finally give the seminar without embarrassment. Thank you, Krishna. First time just recently I gave a seminar without, which is cool. It's just cool. It's like, wow, I finally gave him a seminar and I've just stayed cool the whole time. I don't believe it. So maybe now I can, but it, it's been a long journey. And this is years, years from the time I first gave class on 525.5 in, in Auckland as my regular Bhagavatam class, and the devotees came up to me afterwards and says, oh my God, I'm really going to have to turn this into an article in a seminar. And, and now that it's my multimedia seminar, and now trying to turn that back into an article, I'd like to have it published. I think it's important. I'd, I'd like to do it. And then how to get it past the editors. <laughs> you know? So there, there's, there's things like that. It just is what it is. And sometimes it's very frustrating. And sometimes you think, you know, should I publish it in another media? Or, or the one I got published on offering Dandavat, thank you, Krishna, that that got published. So some of the editors said, well, you, you're making a couple political statements in this article, which I did. And, you know, the one the editor said, okay, well, as long as you just say it's my opinion, then we'll let it in. Because some of them were saying, take it out. I'm like, if you take it out, then I don't even want to publish this. <laughs> okay, we can put it in and you negotiate. And you've got to be willing to go through the, the, the process where you may have to write the entire article over. You may have to start it completely over. You may have to have a different premise. You may have to have a, my Karna article, I think three drafts. Com- three completely different drafts, three completely different rewrites of that article. I love that article, one of my favorite articles that I've written. So it, if you're not willing to do that, then you're, you're not really going to have something that's high quality. And I see that as, I mean, Chaitanya Charan wrote something once to the editorial staff that he sees that as a great blessing that he gets to work with the other editors and that he gets to have this kind of help with his writing. And you, you end up with something definitely, most of the time, you end up with something that's far, far, far better. I mean, sometimes I think it would have been better <laughs> with that. But generally, sometimes I'm like, it would have been much better the way I had written it in the first place. But, but generally, you, you appreciate that what you have is something so much more first class. And like, I was just able to publish this book on Amazon of my chanting articles, and they were already edited. <laughs> I thought, wow, this is really nice. It's a great opulence that it went through this, this process. 
I thought, hope I answered all of your yes. points. When I first looked at this list, I was like, three hours, I'm going to talk about all that stuff. <laughs> Anything else that anybody want to ask? I'm sure there's a lot more I could say, but yes. Um, in your structure, when, when you set up with me, how personal do you make your article? For example, if you're talking about raising good children, would you talk about your children? I might, children? yeah, I have. I have. Um, I took a real risk. Do you have to leave? I've got to pick up my daughter. Thank you so much. It's very inspiring. Thank you for coming on a awesome. weekday <laughs> for yeah. three hours. Thank you. Hopefully there were at least one or two things you could I learned a lot. Take oh out. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure. I took a real risk recently. Yeah, I come around this way. Don't worry about walking behind me. <laughs> Just look at her. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, as part of getting my PhD, I had to do an internship where I worked in a, in a government school. And it was in the Bible Belt of America, where if I had been open that I was a devotee, I would have been fired. And if I was fired, I wouldn't have gotten my degree. So I really needed to keep that job and I really needed to hide the fact that I was a devotee. So it was a, it was a very delicate balancing act for me. And it was, a, it was a very, it was very humbling experience for me. Because it's so easy to say to people, just be Krishna conscious at work, if you've never tried to be Krishna conscious at work. Yes, I wrote an article about that. Now what that article was, was that as part of my internship for college, we had to write um, essays about our internship. And one of the essays we had to write was this very personal essay. I was inspired to publish it because it's one of the main questions I get everywhere in the world. How do you be Krishna conscious in a job? It's one of the number one questions I get. And I was also inspired to write it because I saw that most of the people answering that question didn't have a clue as to how what the answer was. That the vast majority of our preachers had never been Krishna conscious in a job because they've never had a job. And so they don't, they don't know what they're talking about, just <laughs> frankly. They don't know what they're talking about. And I realized that because I realized that I didn't know what I was talking about. Starting about a year before I did the internship, when people asked me that question, I started to say, well, let me do it first, and then I'll tell you. <laughs> There's a, a story of um, Prabhupada tells in Chaitanya Charitamrita when Sankaracharya was debating, and in those days when there were debates, first of all, people knew when they were defeated, which now they don't know anymore when they're defeated, but it, when they were defeated, they'd become the disciple of the person who defeated them. And becoming a disciple of Sankaracharya meant you took sannyas. I mean, it was a pretty serious thing. And you took Mayavadi sannyas. I mean, it was heavy. You engage in a debate with Sankaracharya, and, and you were betting your life. So Sankaracharya debated with this one king, and the, uh, the judge was the queen, so you just imagine how qualified she was. She must have, A, known all the Shastras thoroughly, B, been detached enough to say whether or not her husband lost the debate, which would mean he would take something else. Hare Krishna. This idea of Vedic women as being just sort of, you know, roti rolling, nappy changing, brainless. Anyway. Uh, so it's obviously not the case. So she was the judge of the debate, and after the debate, she says, My husband has lost this debate. She said, But I am half of his body, and unless and until you defeat me, my husband is not lost. Sankaracharya said, you're right. Now, Sankaracharya had said that he would debate on any part of the scriptures. 
So then she said, all right, I want to debate on the Kamashastras. I want to debate on what Prabhupada said. Prabhupada calls in the purport the erotic principles because the Shastra talks about everything. So Prabhupada writes that Sankaracharya had taken sannyas when he was eight and therefore he said, I, I'm not capable of debating on the Kamashastras because I have no personal experience. He said, give me a month. So he left. He went with one disciple into a cave. He left his body. He entered into the body of a dying king. Prabhupada tells the stories in Chaitanya Charitamrita. He enters into the body of a dying king. In the body of the dying king, as Prabhupada puts it, he enjoyed the erotic principles. Then after a month, he left the body of a king, entered back into his own body of Sankaracharya, went back and debated with the queen, defeated the queen, at which time the queen took up a life of renunciation. Prabhupada says she gave up material life. When I researched it, I was thinking, did that mean she died, or does that mean she became a renunciate? But uh, it's, it appears that she became a renunciate and actually started her own ashram. Point is, if you haven't experienced something, you can't talk about it. And we have a lot of harm in our movement from people who preach about things without any personal experience. There's a lot of harm being done in a Hare Krishna movement of people who have no experience about something, they don't know what they're talking about, and they talk about it. So that's another thing, only write about what you have experience with. So I felt that because I did have this experience, that it would be very valuable for me to share that experience with the devotees because it's one of the greatest needs in a Hare Krishna movement. So I decided that I was going to really risk, that, that article is the biggest risk that I've ever taken, that I was really going to risk being vulnerable, because a lot of what I revealed in that article was how much I struggled, how difficult it was for me, how a lot of my ideas were smashed to smithereens, a lot of my so-called theories. I think that's what made the impact. Yes, yeah. but it was a big risk. It wasn't, that wasn't an easy thing for me to decide to publish. I mean, I made a few changes from what I had originally written for my professors. I, I wrote a little intro to it, and I, I changed some of the, the, a little bit of the wording because I was writing for a devotee audience instead of a non-devotee audience. But it was, I'm glad I did it. You know, I, I, think, I think to make yourself vulnerable and honest in the service of the devotees is something very worthwhile. Now, of course, we don't benefit anybody just by telling them how fallen we are. That doesn't benefit anybody. You know, revealing your mind in confidence doesn't mean you say, okay, let me tell you about all the nonsense I thought about today. That, that's, that's not, we should, we should speak in a way that's beneficial for others. Uh, the, main, the main reasons of, of revealing frailties or difficulties is for connection. And we find, you know, like Bilva Mangala, the story of Bilva Mangala Thakur, um, the Narad Muni tells his story how he fell down from the heavenly planets. The story of Jed Bharat, um, so many stories of Indra. Ooh, poor Indra. How would you like to have the stories of your fall downs in the Bhagavad Gita? <laughs> wow. You know, I was just reading about how Indra steals Prithumaraj's hundredth horse because he's envious of Prithu. How dare anybody have a hundred horse sacrifices? Let him only have 99. You know? And he dresses up like a sannyasi. Oh my God. At least, at least my envy is mostly just known to God. <laughs> my embarrassing stories, you know. I one time was on a phone call and I said something so, so arrogant on the phone. Oh my God, what I said. And my daughter and son-in-law were there, and as soon as the words came out of my mouth, they looked at me. 
And all of a sudden I went, what did I just say? And every once in a while my son-in-law still teases me about it. And and sometimes he almost repeats it to other people. I say, don't you dare (laughs) tell anybody what I said. You know, so it's not that we have to we have to get, go out there and, and reveal, you know, where I said this thing that showed that I was the most arrogant person. You know? <laughs> it's like wow, but but we do we do need we do need to let people be comfortable with with facing their own frailties. Because unless and until you can face your own frailties and your own desires, you can't advance. You can't advance if you pretend to be something you're not. You just can't. You can't get anywhere. I always give the example, you can't get direction someplace unless you give your position. How do I get to the temple? Where are you? If you give a false position, I'll give you false directions. So when, when, you're, when you're teaching people, a lot of what you have to do in the very beginning is you've got to get people to be honest, at least internally. It's not that they have to externally reveal stuff, although sometimes I will do that. But you, people at least have to reveal in their own mind and their own heart to themselves what their crying needs are, what their struggles are, what their desires are. Like these three devotees I saw last night, give me blessings. What do you want? And they had no clue what they wanted. You've got to do that. And one of the best ways to do that is to model it. Especially if you're dealing with something that's very embarrassing. Again, you don't you, you don't want to pollute people's minds with the trash that's in our own minds. We all have trash in our minds, yes. Would any of us take like take the transcript of our mind and put it on the internet? You know? I don't think so. So it's it's not that we should do that either. So I don't need to tell you all the time since I joined the Hare Krishna movement that I forgot Krishna, that I've offended devotees, you know, that I thought maybe I'd like to eat that chocolate bar I enjoyed when I was a kid. I haven't yet, but I've thought about it. So, you know, I, I don't, I did one time eat a chocolate bar. No, it wasn't chocolate, it was a carrot bar when I was out on Sankirtan. I can't but we, we, don't, we don't need, we don't need to do but we do need to show people that we are real. If we want them to be real, we've got to be real. You're not real, you're not going to get them to be real. And then we all go on, it's a superficial thing, and nobody gets anywhere. That We all pretend that we're advancing and we're not advancing, and that's not worth anything, or very little. That's worth something, I suppose, because at least there's some idea, and then maybe someday we'll actually do what we're pretending to do. So it's worth something. I mean, Putin made it by pretending, but but generally, you know, it, it, it's not it's not a very good. We're not in the Putin of some Just you know, that's it's not what you really want to do. And if if you're not authentic, it's very hard to get other people to be authentic. It's very 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 difficult. So you have to you have to find ways of being authentic without contaminating other people. 
Does that, do you understand what yes. I'm saying? Yes. I have to authentically say, yeah, I struggle with this. This is an issue for me. But I'm not going to share the details of my struggle and the details of my issue. That's not going to help you. It's not going to help me. It's not going to help you. Now, maybe I'll share that with somebody that I'm particularly close to that can, but that's not, that's not public. That doesn't benefit you. Okay? Now, occasionally, occasionally, I will share details if they're such that they will benefit people. You have, you have to gauge. Like, there's a story that I tell publicly a lot about how one of my students was from Nepal, and he gave me this gorgeous shutter that his mother had sent from Nepal. It was just beautiful. Oh, my mother has sent you. And I thought, oh, he's giving it to me because he's so grateful that I'm his teacher. And, you know, he's just, it's because I'm so wonderful. I mean, I went on and on in my mind about how wonderful I was and that, therefore, I was getting this beautiful charter because I was the most wonderful person in the whole universe. And I had this whole thing. I didn't know I was doing that, but, but that's what I was doing. And, and then I, I, I wore the charter to the temple in the morning. Now, men probably won't relate to this. This is a very female thing. I wore the charter to the temple in the morning, and every other woman had the same charter. <laughs> See, I don't think the men are bothered if every man in the temple has the same quartet. That's not the kind of thing that, that men envy. But when every, every woman had the same chapter, everybody. And I was so upset. You know, I sat down to chant my joke and I couldn't chant. <laughs> couldn't chant. And then finally, you know, when I started to chant, it was just as soon as I started chanting, Krishna said, This is envy. And it was so shocking to me. I didn't realize that I was envious. You know, all those years in the movement, oh, yes, 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 we're all full of envy, and envy is the root of our rebellion against Krishna, and that's why we're not Krishna conscious. Oh, yes, 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 and of course that must mean I'm envious, but I didn't know I was envious. I had no idea. It was all theory. It was all some concept that I was just saying. And, and Krishna said, you're envious. That's what this is. It's envy. And I was like, oh, my God, I really am envious. I'm so envious. I have to have a better charter than every other lady in the temple. No one's allowed to have as nice a charter as I have. So I'll, I'll tell that specific story. I don't mind telling that story. You follow? So there, there are certain things. It depends what it is. And I, 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 I try to get to the point where I've, you know, we, we should try to get to the point where we kind of get over ourselves and we're, we're not so worried about what everybody else thinks of us and who cares really. My grandchildren's grandchildren will not even remember my name. And so, you know, if somebody doesn't like me right now, it doesn't matter. Everybody will forget me in a few years anyway. Seriously. Really seriously. It just doesn't matter. One devotee wrote me this thing today. Somebody had written some really nasty article about me on, on Sambradaya's son, and somebody had copied onto Facebook, and they were writing all these lies about me about on Facebook, and, and should I go and defend myself? And I'm like, why? Why? They won't listen to me anyway. And Ermila thinks this, and I wish he'd never even told me. You know, Ermila thinks this. I'm glad you know what I'm thinking. Okay, that's good. That's cool. They didn't ask me. Nobody asked me. Ermila, what are you thinking? Ermila's thinking this, and she has this motive, and she's done this, and I heard she even did this, and I heard she also did this. I'm like, oh, that's really funny. So, you know, it's some kind of a balance. We, we want to write in such a way that people are benefited and that they're uplifted. That the people, when they read what we write, when they hear what we say, they should feel inspired and they should feel uplifted. They shouldn't feel depressed. They shouldn't feel dirty. You know, like Prabhupada said, don't show pictures of people killing cows and back to God. 
He said, we're against meeting with, that doesn't mean we show pictures of killing cows. He said, that will pollute people's consciousness. He said, just like we're against illicit sex, but we're not going to put pictures of illicit sex. It's like, oh, yeah, that's true. So, you know, don't, don't put pictures of cow killing out for people. You want, you, you, want to, you want to elevate them. You want your writing to be sought for groom. At the same time, you have to be truthful and you have to be authentic. and You have to be real. You've got to be real. People, people are so appreciative when someone is real. Prabhupada said all sorts of interesting things about himself, which if, if you try to deify Prabhupada, they won't make any sense to you. Prabhupada's not God. He's a jiva. And Prabhupada said, he said, he said, when my business failed, he said, when Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati told me to preach in the Western world, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do that, first I have to make a lot of money, which is a common mistake that we make. He said, first I have to make a lot of money. So he said, I didn't do it right away. He said, that was my mistake. He said, so I started a business and tried to make a lot of money. He said, then when I was ready to preach, the business failed. He said, so I was thinking, I must have made some mistake. And Krishna is displeased with me. And therefore, he made the business fail. He said, then I realized, oh, Krishna is taking away everything to help me. And Krishna wants me to start the movement in another way. So Prabhupada was talking about his process of, of thinking and his, his process of coming to an understanding and I take that as just real. I just take it as it is. I don't, I don't interpret it. I don't, I don't look at that and interpret that. Well, Prabhupada didn't really think like that, and he didn't really feel like that. He's just pretending to feel like that. I don't take it like that. I take that Prabhupada was being very honest. And Prabhupada said, I didn't want to take sannyas. He said, I was terrified of taking sannyas. Prabhupada had been away from his family already for four years. He said, I didn't want to take sannyas. He said, my guru forced me. He kept insisting, take sannyas, take sannyas. My god brothers forced me. He said, we're all afraid of giving up our family. And I take it that Prabhupada was genuinely talking about how he felt. And he was genuinely being authentic that that's how he felt. And giving us, giving us a, a template for how we respond when Krishna takes away something that we feel is useful for our service or how we respond when Krishna pushes us to something that we feel is beyond our capability to do. And Prabhupada said when he came to America, you know, the first few months, nobody came. He had nothing. He wasn't getting anywhere. And he said, I would go back to the, to the boatyard every two months and say, when's the next boat back to India? So again, I take that as, as real. I take that as, as, as Prabhupada's being very genuine with us. And that's... You know, the first time I met Shiva Prabhupada, I first saw him on the Vyasasam preaching as the Acharya. And I, there was no difference between that and listening to a, t- a recording. The experience was identical in every respect. There was, there was not one iota of difference between I was standing as close to Prabhupada as I'm, to you, and I was fanning him during the class, and, and listening to Prabhupada sitting on the Vyasasam and listening to a recording. It was 100% identical which was lovely because that meant Prabhupada had always been there in his recordings and he'd still be there in his recordings when he left. But I also wanted something more. So I was, I was with this, well, this is wonderful that, I'm, that Prabhupada's always been here. But at the same time, I wanted something personal. And later we got to meet my family and I, we got to meet Prabhupada in his room and we really saw Prabhupada 
in, in, not as the acharya, but as the person, as the individual jiva, as the person. And he was in a very casual mood. It was, it was very sweet. And that you can't get on Urquhart. That is a different, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. But Prabhupada, I mean, when people ask me to describe Prabhupada in one word, my answer is that he was authentic. He was genuine. He was real. You know, and Prabhupada would, was equally real if somebody said, you know, have you seen Krishna? And he said, yes, I'm seeing Krishna at every moment. And when he said, I didn't want to take sannyas, I was terrified. I didn't want to leave my family. I didn't want to take sannyas. Those are both real. Yes, I'm seeing Krishna at every moment. Yes, there's never a time. I remember I was there when the recorder said, Prabhupada, at what, at what, you know, Swamiji, at what age did you realize the highest truth? Prabhupada said that. I cannot say from the age. He said, I've never forgotten Krishna. I always remember Krishna. But at what age? At what age, Swamiji? I cannot say from the age. I know there's no age. Well, Swamiji, if you had to give an age, what age was there that you became enlightened? Oh, if I have to give an age, then four or five years. <laughs> so Prabhupada was very authentic in that respect. And he was also very authentic in saying, I thought I had offended Krishna and I thought I made a mistake and that's why my business failed. And then I understood, oh, Krishna wanted in another way. Is that all right? This whole world is full of phonies. The whole world, it's all full of pretense. This whole world is just a bunch of pretenders. We're all pretending to be something we're not. Yeah, well, we put all this energy into our masks and our personas. Yes? Even in a Hare Krishna movement. I am a good devotee. I am a loyalist member. I am a good devotee. You know? And I mean, that's useful in the beginning. It's useful. It's better than the mask of I'm a materialist or whatever, but at a certain point, you know, we're, we're, we're dying for authenticity. Yes? We're dying for it. We want truth. It has to be beneficial. Austerities of speech. Truthful, beneficial, pleasing. This I'm sure would apply to writing. Truthful, beneficial, pleasing. Language is not agitating to others and based on the Vedas. So it's got to be true. It's got to be based on the Vedas. The language has to be pleasing, which is why poetry is such a good thing. The content and the message has to be pleasing. And it's got to be beneficial. It's got to benefit you as the writer, and it's got to benefit your readers. So that's your main question to ask. Will people be benefited? Yes, it's true. Yes, it's based on the scriptures. I've used beautiful language. The content is pleasing. Will people be benefited? That's your question. And if people will be benefited, if they'll genuinely be benefited, then being a little humble is, is not a bad thing. There's no harm with being humble if it will benefit others. If it will not benefit others, then you, know, you have to, you know, share what will benefit others. And that's the same with your good things. You know, with your struggles and with your victories. We don't share all of our victories either. Some realizations, some victories, some wonderful things about ourselves, some wonderful things about a Krishna consciousness are just as private and just as not shareable as some of the horrible, horrible thoughts that go through our mind. Okay? Does that make sense to everybody? 
It's not that if you're chanting Japa and you know Krishna comes and gives you a hug that you write about that and publish it. You may tell your, you may call up your good friend and say, "Oh my God, you'll never believe what happened to me in Japa today." I realized Krishna is his name. I had one of my good friends one time call me and say, "Mother in law, you know how they're always saying that chanting Hare Krishna is sweet?" Yeah. Well, it actually is. <laughs> she said, it's not just a metaphor. She said, the holy name has a sweet taste. And I was tasting the sweetness. But you don't necessarily say that in public. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I mean, I meet devotees that have amazing spiritual experiences, unbelievable spiritual experiences. So I met one devotee who told me, she said, well, I was chanting Japa. She said, all of a sudden, Lord Varaha came, and I could feel his skin, and it was like velvet. But if that's your experience, you probably don't put that in an article that goes out in public. And you probably don't say that from the Vyasa side. Maybe you say it to your friend. Do you understand? I'm writing um, a, a column on, on stories, short stories. And... Um, I try not to put too much philosophy because you were saying that when there's storytelling, there should be some philosophy. Definitely. Um, but I try to put philosophy through the story. It should be interwoven into the yes. story. Yes. Well, if you're if you're very expert at storytelling, you can. It depends who your audience is. If you're very expert at storytelling, you can weave the philosophy in subtly. I mean, all those books I wrote for children, I really avoid preaching in the stories. I wanted people who are not devotee, devotee, devotees to be willing to buy them. And my assumption was that if devotee parents and devotee teachers are using the books, they can add their own preaching that I wasn't, I wasn't there. You know, they're very simple stories for very young children. But Prabhupada did not just tell stories without philosophy. He just didn't. He simply didn't. I'm not saying that we can never do that. I'm not saying that it's some kind of a rule. But I'm simply noting that Prabhupada did not do that. As far as I know, he never did it. I mean, we, we, we developed a policy in Back to God that we will not just print stories without any philosophy. Especially summaries of stories without philosophy. They're not even fun to read. You know. I mean, that book, um, The Dream Manager... 95% of that book is just a story. It's simply a story. It's a story of this company and how they went from barely making it financially to being a huge success by caring for the employees and fulfilling the dreams of the, of the employees. But it's just a story. Then at the very end of the book, there's some... Uh, practical advice as to what you can do in your own life and what you can do in your own business to put these principles into action. And I'd say it's the only management book I've, re I've ever read, and I've read many, 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 that was just a story. Usually they'll make points and they'll have a story, and it was just one story. I kept expecting that at the end of that chapter they'd go on to give another example or they'd no, it was, it, was, it was a very unusual, but it was very powerful. I mean, I cried several times when I was reading that. It was so powerful. And I thought, wow, you know, if we could organize our own movement like this, if we could organize society, you know, if the world was organized like this, if the government leaders and the parents <coughs> and, the, and all the leaders had this sort of a focus, maybe not in that kind of details, but not necessarily exactly specifically what they did, 
with that kind of pencil. The most effective means of teaching anything is through stories. There simply is not a more effective means of teaching than through stories. It doesn't exist. As I say, all of our scriptures are stories. I mean, not the, not the uh, Ishopanishad. The whole Bhagavatam is stories, and it's a story, you know, you've got the big story of the sages at Namasharanya, you've got the story of Maharaj Prakit, and it's a story within a story within a story within a story within, and sometimes overlapping, and, and uh, psychologists have analyzed that the most effective stories are stories within stories within stories. And they're really stories. There's a snake bird coming to bite Prakit, and they're, they're exciting stories. The more you get into them, the more you wish they were made into a Hollywood movie or something. Fuck out stories. So that's another seminar I have. Why stories are so effective. I'm hardly ever asked to teach that one. I haven't taught it for years and years and years. But I have a seminar on how how to develop, um, how to write fables, how to write and tell fables and metaphorical stories. The, the value. Nobody ever asked me for that. We'll ask you next time. <laughs> I have to take a lot of review with it because I, I I teach it so rarely. But you know, I, what is what is the value, particularly of fiction? What is the value of metaphor, of fable, of analogy? Why is it so effective at teaching philosophy? Philosophy values behavioral changes, and how do you do it? How do you create metaphors? to teach what you want to teach. Okay, we are past our time. Should we end now? Yes, we should. Okay. Unless somebody has some pressing burning question. It's got to be pressing and burning. No, seriously, does anyone have something that they'd really that they'd really like to ask? Yes, you do. Yes, go ahead. Oh. Um there's a book called The Students Writers Handbook by Susan Sorensen, which uh, goes through every possible type of writing that anybody could do in their life other than a full-on novel and gives you guidance step-by-step step as to how to write it. The Student, student Writer's Handbook by Susan Sorensen. You should be able to get it on Amazon. And it's, it's just a manual for any kind of writing that you could possibly do. And then you also want to study something about APA style. Because use, we use APA style, and I think when you go there, assume that you need help and ask for it, and and take it from this. We have a lot of things set up, set up in place where there's different people at the college who will help the students with their writing, but a lot of students don't make use of it, and then they turn in papers that are just awful because they haven't made use of it. So the things that that people really struggle with there are you know, how to organize a paper so that it has a beginning, middle, and end, so it has an introduction, body, and conclusion, how to have proper transitions between your thoughts, how to, how to develop your arguments, 
having enough citations, knowing when to cite, knowing when not to cite, knowing how to cite. So those are the main things that I see people struggling with. And then sometimes just basic grammar and spelling, which there's just no excuse for not having that, right? You know, there's absolutely no excuse for getting a spelling. I mean, how can how can how does anyone have an excuse for having misspellings anymore? Wow, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that. Really, I mean, with spell checkers, there really just is no excuse for that. So that that kind of thing. Thank you very very much. If I've said anything that offended anybody, please excuse me. And I hope I've said something that was of, of use and of value. Thank you. You were very authentic. <laughs> I try. I really try. I have, I have found that being authentic is such a relief. Yes. It's such a relief. It's one of our deepest needs is for truth and, and authenticity. We don't have to be afraid. No, we don't have to be afraid. What we have to be afraid of is Maya. We have to be afraid of being of being pretenders. I'm um, my big writing project I'm working on now is publishing Raghunath Das Goswami's Manashiksha. So we've gotten all the Sanskrit verses translated. We've gotten all the Bhaktivinotakura's song commentaries translated first time, and we've gotten now ten out of the twelve prose commentaries of Bhaktivinoda translated. They're going through uh, checking right now. Then we've gotten all of Sachinanda Maharaj's seminars on Manashiksha transcribed. We've gotten Bhaktivedanta Swami's. I'm not sure how many he's got. It looks like we've got about 25 or 30 seminars because he often gave three at different times on one verse. We're going to have to combine them. It's going to be an editor's nightmare. But we've gotten those translated from Russian to English and transcribed. And Radhana Swami says he's going to be writing commentary. Then we've got uh, six artists who are going to do 116 black and white drawings and one artist is going to do 12 color drawings and in, in one of the it's a, the Manashiksha is a guidebook for entering into higher stages of bhakti it's a step by step guidebook it's one of Bhakti Nautakura says there's two guidebooks for the higher stages of bhakti and the other one which is the one that devotees tend to know about doesn't seem to me to be really suitable for Prabhupada's movement it's a it just isn't it isn't a preaching work in the world kind of guidebook. So I see Manashiksha as being very important. And it's very interesting that Raghunath Das Goswami really emphasizes giving up deceit. That the main thing that has to be given up before one fully enters into Krishna's Leela is deceit. And he talks about how, Bhaktivedanta Thakur, especially in his commentary, talks about how the desire for fame and honor is what causes us to take up various pretensions. So I, I see it like there's this tree, and the root of the tree is this desire for fame and honor. And then on all the branches are all these masks. And because I want, I want to be famous and I want to be honored, then I pretend to be somebody I'm not. So the people will honor me for what I'm not, because I know I can't be honored for what I am. Wow. You know, I know if I'm honestly who I am, nobody's going to honor me, and I'm not going to be famous, because I'm a little teeny tiny soul that everybody's going to forget about in a few years. And that that my my ability my ability to be a controller and to have any influence and to have any meaning other than love for Krishna isn't there. My only meaning is as a lover of Krishna. My only meaning is as a servant of Krishna. And that's beautiful and it's eternal and it's wonderful. But it's very small. It's very small, you know. And my eternal service may be just 
giving a flower garden call into a gopi, you know. I mean, it's, it's, and because we want honor above what we are and different from what we are, we take all these masks. And we suffer. It's just suffering. And then you got to feed the mask and you got to maintain it. you got to re- remember which mask you're wearing. And, yeah. you know, and, and it, it's not satisfying. It's just not satisfying to have relationships with other people. No, none of them is being authentic and everyone's wearing a mask and you're relating with C.S. Lewis actually wrote that in another one of his books. He wrote it actually in regard to birth control. He wrote it that when, when husband and wife are using birth control, they're not actually having sex with each other. They're having sex with like a parody of each other. They're not actually connecting. You know, literally a lot of contraceptives is a literal barrier. It's a physical barrier. It's a psychological barrier. So all of our dealings with each other, it's, it's you know, on my mask relating with your mask. And that until we uproot this desire for honor, we keep doing these pretenses. And as long as we do these pretenses, we, that's, that's the last thing. That's the last thing. He talks about giving up all these different inartas. You know, letting go, and then it's the last thing. Give up that, then, then Krishna says, "Okay, now you're mine," and then you get under the control of the internal energy. Okay. the internal energy. It's at that point that Krishna turns you over to Radharani and says, "Now you're under the control of the internal energy." But you have to get rid of the, of the pretenses, and you can't get rid of the pretenses as long as you want to be honored for something you're not. So it's a, it's. And we go on even as devotees in the Hare Krishna movement. We, we take off the mask of, of, that we had when we were materialists and then we put on these other ones. I am a good devotee. Yeah, isn't it? How dare you say that I'm not a... I mean, it's so silly because on the one hand we say, yes, I'm so fallen. <laughs> well, I'm not a pure devotee, Prabhu. Okay, well, this is how you're not a pure devotee. How dare you say I'm not a pure devotee? You know, it's... it's isn't it? How dare you say I had something in my article that wasn't bona fide? But I thought you just said you're not a pure devotee. <laughs> <laughs>